3: Oh, it could happen here and earlier this week, not the week you're hearing this, but the week we recorded it. It did. It being the end of Roe v. Wade via Supreme Court fiat uh, and also the coming end of 100 years of social progress and less people get real organized and aggressive real fucking quick. I'm Robert Evans. Uh, who, else, who else do I got on with me today? Is there a, is there a, is there a Christopher Wong on the line?
6: Yes, uh, there there is one. There are many others, but but I am me.
3: <laughs> yeah, the others do not count. Um, is there a Garrison Davis on the line?
7: The only one that I know of.
3: That's right. That's right. We exterminated the others in a in a brutal set of purges, a la Stalin. Um, and then, of course, Shireen Laniyuna. Shireen,
8: I'm I'm here too.
3: Would you yeah. like to introduce Sophie?
8: Of course, I mean, the one and only Sophie. I mean. Okay. Well, that's
3: us. Wow. And now today I am uh, intensely excited to introduce our guest, um, who is a cool person doing cool stuff to steal from oh, another one of okay. our podcasters, uh, Kat Green of the Abortion Access Front. Kat, welcome to, to the show. Thank you for coming on. I know this has been a hell week for you. Oh,
9: yeah. Thanks for having <sighs> me on. I really appreciate it.
3: Now, um, you and I have a a friend in common, and you guys were actually at uh, a national conference for abortion access when the news dropped uh, a little early. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about
9: what happened there? Yeah. I mean, now that the conference is over, I can say that we were in one of the worst cities in the world to be in when all of this happened, Orlando, Florida, Oh, which is basically made of paper sets right
3: yeah (laughs) yeah.
9: um, honestly you
3: could have stopped that sentence at one of the worst cities to be in
9: (laughs) yeah we had actually been out to dinner at um the oldest restaurant in florida earlier that night and it was a lovely evening um even though like some angry driver uh tried to kill our mutual friend over a parking (laughs) space Ah, (laughs) florida gloss over that part you you know i mean Florida.
8: Yeah. Mm
9: -hmm. You know, uh, also the day had started with uh, there already being a bomb threat at a clinic in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was trying to help people find information about that earlier in the day. And then um, we went out to dinner (laughs) thinking that we got to relax and then came back to the news as it was breaking and into the lobby of our hotel where um, the remaining providers and advocates that were there were Just trying to make do.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, Kat, first of all, I guess we should talk about what the abortion access front does and and your job there, because this is something I don't think a lot of people think about. One of the things that's become clear to me from some of the, the reaction of some folks this week on the more liberal side of things is there is a general unawareness of how violent and intense the threats against abortion access providers have been for like 40 years
9: yeah. Um, well, so Abortion Access Front was founded by Liz Winstead, uh, my partner who was the co-creator of The Daily Show, and started as a progressive advo- advocacy and messaging hub. Mm-hmm. And so we were making funny videos about abortion, and then Trump got elected. <laughs> we were like, oh, wow, our jobs got way more serious all of a sudden. And so we had like 700 volunteers in the week after the 2016 election. and so. We started becoming matchmakers for volunteers to um, different clinics around the country. And we were doing comedy tours where we were trying to build community around the clinics um, in different states. And so we would do a comedy show, have have a provider on at the end to talk about what was at stake locally and then get people to sign up to help because people didn't have access to contractors in many of the places we were going, you know, like we would go out and do landscaping work when we were on tour because we were just trying to help out wherever we could. And in the course of that, the nice folks at the national abortion federation reached out to us and we're like, we're a little concerned about you putting providers on stage. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about your security plan. So they, uh, they were out with us uh, the first two years. And um, then were giving me information about people we needed to watch out for so i got way more involved in creating these security plans around our shows and our tours and um started doing a lot of my own research on anti-abortion extremists because as we started talking to more people uh that clinic escorts in front of the clinics we were getting information about not just leadership but the people on the ground who they were the most afraid of so then I was like, I wish I could just put all this into something where I could look something up by a zip code, and be able to tell who I need to watch out for in a particular area. And that didn't really exist. <laughs> so um, there was just a whisper network of escorts, and then the leadership uh, research that NAP was doing. And so I started consolidating all my research into a database for all of us to be able to use and. Um, track uh, incidents and organizations and bad actors all over the country
3: i mean that's that's extremely important but also uh extremely cool um it is uh, you brought up right at the start of your w- what you were saying the that there was a, a shooting at the knoxville clinic um oh not a
9: shooting No, oh, there, a sh- that there was, was earlier a, there was right? a bomb yeah. scare at the uh at the knoxville clinic um on monday and and, there was a there was an arson at the planned parenthood in knoxville uh this past uh new year's eve um and that same clinic that same planned parenthood that was burned down on new year's eve actually had its front door shot out about a year earlier
3: and uh, uh because this this is one of the more frustrating cases if you look this up you can see that like The fire department has said it was an arson. Um, The ATF is investigating. The FBI is investigating. They've both given the kind of boilerplate statements they give in those instances. You don't see a lot from the local police. I'm curious if you have anything to say about, like, the degree to which the local police have been useful in responding to this.
9: Well, I don't work with the local police at all. Um, I, (laughs) You know, I'm a TV person that got into uh, – doing extremist research I'm an editor and that oh, yeah. I, I sort information right so like <laughs> that made sense to me but um I law enforcement doesn't really take me too seriously um but the people on the ground have a lot of thoughts about who it could be right there mm-hmm. are known people in the Knoxville area who have caused all sorts of problems there was another arson in a different community center there too um and several, white supremacists were arrested after protesting at Black Lives Matter uh, event maybe two years ago. And so there's, here's the thing, there's information about the Knoxville fire that went out on Telegram with an order of nine angles Nazi claiming credit for it. And how hard can it be to find a pagan Nazi? In
7: Knoxville,
10: like, <laughs> <laughs> you
9: like you go to a golf club and be like, "Who's hit you in the face here?" You know, like. Wow. So yeah, I, I feel like there are hindrances to the investigation, um, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the activists on the ground have good leads that are not being
10: followed.
3: Yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably the most uh, direct thing that can be said about it. What? So to the extent that like there's seemingly not a lot in a lot of these states that uh, is going to be done preemptively by law enforcement, um, when it comes to like actually tracing out the threats, uh, how much do you feel like you you have a chance to actually stop them from carrying out an action? And how much of it do you feel is just like we need to be documenting this for, for when it happens, you know?
9: We're already getting early warning about events. Um, We're already, because we track the people who, there are a number of groups that create the same kind of actions that are either invasions or blockades at various clinics and people who have been organizing around this for decades, right? So in tracking them and starting to put the pieces together, we're already getting early warning about where they're headed, about who needs to be alerted. You know, there have been, at this point, three incidents just, and like, I'm working with a group of volunteers. Mm-hmm. These are all people who either escort at clinics or part of, advo- part of advocacy orgs that, you know, are not getting paid to do intel, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they, they're invested in the cause. And so they just follow this stuff on the regular, and we're all in touch with each other. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, this person who's been a part of 12 other blockades in the last three years has been seen going on a tour and said the next three stops he's going to let's tell all the clinics in the neighborhood what's happening and they can be a little bit better prepared. And that's, you know, I mean, honestly, because the abortion movement is not super supported by law enforcement largely um, it seemed like a necessary thing for everybody to start keeping their own records for their own safety. And that's really how all this came together.
3: Now, it's interesting to me that you you brought up one of kind of the lead suspects, I guess you might say, for the attack on the Knoxville Clinic was an O9A dude. I'm wondering with kind of the threats you're seeing, obviously, there's decades of attacks on abortion access providers, including a lot of fatal attacks, assassinations, acid attacks, numerous bombings and attempted bombings. How has the character of who is making the threats and who you see as threats started to change over the la- recent years?
9: I mean, the O9A thing is a big shift. Yeah, that's like, that's weird. You know, yeah. uh, we've been following the same Christian nationalists for years, mm-hmm. and largely they have the same playbook. They make a few changes to it. A lot of them are older. You know, it's lock and blocks or invasions. There's a few Catholics who get really aggressive and like shove their way into stuff, but it's not um it hasn't been big surprises until recently <laughs> and, and and a lot of the time in the past even when there was extreme violence happening uh, amongst these people it it was still sort of tied back to christian identity stuff and now we're really starting to see it branching out and, and honestly i blame i blame a few things one just the internet in general but also the pandemic kind of galvanized extremists across a lot of spheres. Yeah. And um, you started seeing a lot of Christian identity people that weren't necessarily militia people starting to mingle with militia people. And then, you know, militia people starting to mingle with white supremacists, like over white supremacists. And um, so now there's this crossbreeding that's happening where like, I mean, the Gripers are a great example of just, like, this weird amalgam of things that didn't exist in the same sphere before, and now they're their own movement.
3: Yeah, I uh, I can't tell you how much I hate that, like, other people who who aren't weirdos who spend all of their time on Nazi Telegram know what Gripers are now. Yeah, it's extremely uh, frustrating.
7: <laughs> I, it, it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, one of the weird things about doing this type of research for years is seeing like on YouTube like thumbnails by like Stephen Colbert talking about yeah. like wacky like nonsense that I've known about for years and him talking about it like like it's this big new thing and you're always like oh wow the the little tiny corner of the internet I was just watching and staring at now is like it's something that isn't like a regular libs uh political lexicon and that's mm-hmm. like Horrible.
9: Yeah. Well, Joe Rogan posting about the Kali Yuga, you know? Oh, like, yeah.
3: oh, yeah. oh God. It's, uh, that was, <laughs> that was a hard drinking night for me.
2: Like, like, that is, was a hard yeah.
9: drinking
3: night for me. Yeah.
9: And it's so hard to explain to people why it's so bad. You're like, yep. Oh, well it's, it's just.
3: Hindu. It's so like, once back in the twenties, <laughs> there was this lady named Savitri Devi. <laughs> <laughs> now. <Right>.
9: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, It's really troubling because um, it's making its way into traditional Christian identity stuff. You know, Um, evangelical stuff, quiverful stuff is now starting to cross over way more aggressively with militia stuff and and with like overt white supremacist neo-Nazi stuff.
3: It's such a problem because and this is something Umberto Echo, you know, noted a long time ago, but like fascism is is deeply syncretic, right? And we're that's what we're talking about right now, is its ability. It's like a Katamari. I refer back to that game a lot because it does just keep picking things up. Yeah, and um we don't really do that as much on like I, I but everyone from like the center left to like weirdo anarchists and, and and whatnot, like, everyone's got their own little box, right? And there's some interplay. But f- for the most part, people on the left really like making boxes. And people on the right, it's just one big ball pit where everybody's smearing their diseases and snot around. And it's not great.
9: <laughs> no, and I mean, We need to figure out some sort of solidarity because, Mm -hmm. like, even with the abortion protests that are happening this week, we're already seeing people co opting things and turning it in really destructive directions. Um, I mean, you know, the entire cult of Bob Abakian.
3: Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) The Redcon folks. Yeah. You know,
9: I mean, I'm actually worried about that as at this point, it feels like a legit astroturf. It doesn't feel like they're fighting with actual (laughs) abortion providers and saying that. you know that like abortion funds are a problem it's like those those are the people actually walking the walk and doing anything about this what are you doing besides showing up in bloody pants and picking fights with cops like
3: yeah it's this you know one of the more uplifting stories that's come out recently is that in france Um, the left is doing a popular front again in order to kind of wrest control of the government from macron we'll see how it works right this is just something that's kind of been announced and but this is like this has happened a few times in the past in different formulations and i do kind of it would be nice to see a broad popular front in favor of abortion access on a very blunt level but that would in- involve people not just getting on board with trying to wrest control from the right back electorally but people supporting illegalism a lot of people are going yeah. to have to do things that are not legal in order to maintain access to reproductive health care
7: you know there's the other side of it is like hardline anarchists will have to realize that working with libs is occasionally useful um and using them as body shields sometimes can can let you do more illegalist uh, type praxis. So there's, there's both in terms of like people who are really dogmatic on the left being like, okay, there's t- types, there's certain times where this type, this, this intersectionalism can be really useful. And then people who are less radical having to be okay with more radical tactics happening.
9: I mean, my biggest fear right now is the mass criminalization event that's about to happen. Yeah. Right. I, you know, no matter what, People's pregnancies are going to be criminalized mm-hmm. in various forms. If you have a miscarriage, it's going to be criminalized. You're going to have to be more cautious about how you use your phone and what you say in the emergency room and you know what you say to people in your own family. And I don't think that most people on our side are prepared to have that level of caution or divorce themselves from technology in the way that kind of needs to happen for people to stay safe. I'm also worried that, like, as a movement, um, we're not really identifying the fact that it's all about bodily autonomy. And so that means everybody trying to access trans health care is is as much or more so at risk.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And,
9: um, you know, and and we have so much to learn from the sex work industry about all of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Like so much of what is happening now was built on like the permissiveness of what people accepted under FOSTA and SESTA.
3: Absolutely.
9: And, um, you know, that's how all of us got deprioritized and stupid algorithms in the first place. And, and then all of a sudden weren't allowed to put ads out for like legitimate healthcare services. And keeping ourselves in boxes is really doing everybody a disservice. Because yeah. Everybody that's been criminalized, everybody who just trying to exist is at risk right now is in this together
3: yeah it's um you know there's that famous quote from um who's a, a minister of some sort during you know the weimar years about first they came for you know yada 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 um and it is like it's always true with fascists but that doesn't mean that people ever spot it while it's happening right because there's there's very few groups that, mainstream America has less inherent sympathy for than sex workers and the reality is that they were testing a lot of this out on those people because they are marginalized and I guess one of the things I hope we'll see and that might have some positive developments is that there are a lot of sex workers out there with a lot of opsec tips that they can give other people now um I it would be dope if you know there were folks like setting up clinics and stuff in that Because I I think there's a lot of information that does need to get shared with folks who are not used to thinking about any of the stuff they're doing as illegal. I've been seeing stuff on, you know, Facebook among kind of... Friends of mine who are more middle of the road and family members who are pretty much centrist politically where they're talking about like, hey, if you need to go on a camping trip in another state, I'll take you on your camping trip. And it's like, I get it. Like, it's great to express solidarity. But will you feel that way when it's actually a felony and people are getting 20 year sentences for doing it? Right. Right. Like, because that's where we're headed, you know?
9: Yeah. 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 I mean, people need to get more serious about moving their data out of the country altogether. you know. Like thinking about what can be subpoenaed. Yeah. Um, the folks at Hacking and Hustling are doing really amazing work to spread sort of uh, sex work and sex work adjacent OPSEC knowledge to other communities too. Like they're amazing. Um, oh, that's really great. I, I, had,
3: I was not aware of what they were doing. Um, would you mind giving like a little a brief overview of what that is? For folks? I mean, I mean, will try been to reach out to them, but.
9: I've only been in a couple sessions with them, but they're they're generally just sharing information about like tightening up your digital footprint and also being conscious about how having multiple, um, like if you have to have a clandestine identity online, mm-hmm. how you can keep that from leaking over into any of your other digital identities, right? It's, it, and I mean, it's a really important distinction because even if you have something like a sock account on something like Facebook, Based on how you set it up and what other accounts it's connected to and who you friend in that process, it can very easily find its way back to you and the people connected to you. Yeah. And so how That's, do you keep those streams
3: separate? Yeah, I mean, whenever somebody angers this podcast, we have Garrison track them down. It's very easy.
7: Yeah, that is mm-hmm. that is that mm-hmm. is true. I have a whole mm-hmm. whole folder of uh, people dropping their kids off at school. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs>
3: So, you know, keep your eye out. Hello, fresh. Don't screw with us again.
7: Or that one reviewer that said that there was the woman on the podcast who was annoying. I know who you are. Mm -hmm. I I was able to I was able to track back via your Apple account.
9: (laughs) Just
10: Just one? Just one reviewer?
9: Uh
7: Uh-huh.
9: Somebody so, tried to request access to one of my folders uh, that's connected to, we had a January 6th document mm-hmm. where we had identified a bunch of people. And so I just linked it to, you know, Google Drive things so that press people could get to stuff. <laughs> and somebody just out of nowhere tried to access one of them the other day and requested permission. I'm I, I just like, all I had to do was look up your name in the word abortion. Like, come on, try a little harder. <laughs> like,
3: um. <clears throat> so, Kat, I'm wondering, number one, for people who are, like, pissed and feeling helpless, there are things that folks can do to help, assuming you live in a state that there's anything at all around, because, like, a lot of people who are hundreds of miles away from any kind of clinic, but if you're not, I know there are ways people can help. Do you have any kind of pieces of advice for folks interested in being of use
9: there are so many things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, I think the biggest thing that the movement needs more than anything is abortion funds and practical support funds really need financial help because they are paying to move people around as night as needed to get them care, mm-hmm. right. So the money thing is always the obvious. but um we're actually having an event on July 17th that is sort of an orientation day for new people coming to the movement who want to mm-hmm. volunteer and don't know where. So we're going to cover things like, how you become a clinic escort? What it means to volunteer on like uh, an abortion fund or practical support hotline? Um, how you can get involved in lobbying groups? How you can get involved in direct action groups? And sort of pre-vetting people and then getting them out to the organizations that actually have capacity to take on volunteers right now, because a lot of what's happening, like we already saw it in Texas, where people really wanted to volunteer to help in Texas after SB8 came down, but they were doing things like calling the abortion fund hotline to try and get to people. And it's like, no, you can't clog up the hotline. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah. So we're trying to take some of the lift off of the orgs that are already overtaxed, vet their people, give them some background information, give them a better idea of what the landscape is in the movement, and then make the connections to organizations that have the capacity to take them on. So it's called Operation Save Abortion. Um and we're going to do a live stream and uh, house parties all over the country. Awesome. Where people are either watching the streams we're doing or having their own local people to talk about how people can get active locally uh, in more direct ways. Yeah.
3: And there's stuff like being an escort, which is is something I've, I've been learning a little bit more about recently. Um, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is like uh, from a, a, a perspective of actually like keeping folks safe, um, is that something that you feel has like a lot of value or, or is Absolutely. that something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is that like a, people would want to like look at, are there kind of resources for, for getting involved with that?
9: There are. Clinic escorting is a little tricky right now because mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of clinics that don't know if they're going to be open in eight weeks. Right. So uh, right now, while that's all shaking out, I mean, if you already have an established relationship with your local clinic definitely check in with them. Um, Clinics in states that are going to see a surge, um, Pennsylvania, Illinois, New York, Mm -hmm. I mean, really anywhere that's still gonna have abortion after the 26 states fall, the entire West Coast, uh, New Mexico, right, uh, uh, Minnesota, they are all going to need escorts, um, which clinic escorting is walking a person from their car to the clinic door past protesters. Um, it's generally, uh, I would say 99% of clinics are non-engagement clinics. So doing this means that you're there for the patient, you're not there to get in a protester's face. Some clinics um, have enough of a protester presence, like um, clinics in Charlotte, clinics in Jackson, Mississippi, where they have, they split it up and they have people that are there for the patients and people that are there to distract protesters and sort of Mm -hmm. Pull them away from uh, the door, you know, just get them a little bit removed so that they can get patients past them.
3: This is a little bit less pleasant of a question, but, you know, I've I've done for a different cause a lot of the same research where you're like spending time in these dark corners of the internet, making notes of people and threats being made. And um, I remember the horrible feeling of like having a specific kind of thing that hadn't quite happened before that I was sure was going to happen. And then the fucking thing happens. Um are there particular things you are worried about in th- especially like once this comes through like that uh, that are kind of on your horizon like is there stuff that that people need to be kind of preparing for in terms of like an escalation in in direct action against clinics
9: Absolutely I mean we're already seeing uh, increased threats against clinics
2: mm-hmm.
9: um, this this bomb threat the other day was a test balloon right? But there are organizations like POW who are actively, aggressively invading clinics on the regular and doing things like stealing products of conception, fetal remains, right? And parading them out to the public and naming doctors um, in an effort to get them hurt, right? It's, It's stochastic terrorism. They're not they are not going to be the ones to pull the trigger. They are just putting it out there so that somebody else does the dirty work for them. And so many people are guilty of that, right? The uh, the church at Planned Parenthood is another good example. And they've had, you know, they've had a long presence in Spokane. Um, They moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. They've set up church plants in Birmingham and they've they've been throughout um, Oregon. And, and in Oregon, they were hiring the Proud Boys as their security, which eventually, unsurprisingly, turned into a big fight when counter-protesters showed up, the police showed up, tear-gassed everybody. <laughs> and it's like, how is, one, how is this church? Two, you know, like, what is anybody trying to get out of this? And, and so there's a lot of people who've been putting it out there for a long time that, there's all this othering language of calling people demons because it makes them easier to kill. There's going to be clinic violence. I mean, there's going to be more clinic violence. I should say all of this is violent. It's violent to have people out there screaming at you and calling you a whore with a giant sign of fetus, you know, parts. And and then it, but I mean, they're really waiting for somebody to light more buildings on fire or shoot somebody and it's going to happen.
3: Yeah. Well, does anyone else have anything to get into here?
9: On that happy note.
3: On <laughs> that
7: happy note, I think yeah. um, it's just it's not going to be like actual Nazi extremists that do a lot of these attacks either. I think, <clears throat> especially with it uh, being, especially if if like if Roe v. Wade does get fully taken away, it that will justify uh, pretty violent action in the minds of like most regular Christians. Um, mm-hmm. Even when I grew up in like a pretty evangelical. Uh, type of community those types of like attacks against Planned Parenthood were almost that like there was the there was the overall feeling that they were like celebrated and people who would do it would be lauded as like biblical heroes um for for like ar- for like just arsoning a building like that That was very much the sense that I got when I was a kid like I I, I remember Thinking, thinking, those thoughts like, oh, that's what like a good people do. Like that's like people who are brave will go and burn down a, a an abortion clinic.
9: They were openly celebrated. You know, the yeah. Army of God would have the White Rose banquet to raise money to by auctioning off the personal effects of people who had bombed clinics and shot doctors. And yeah. you see a lot of that mirrored now in things like the Saints' calendar, right? And and so you see you see neo-nazis and and other white supremacists promoting the saints calendar and then directing people to the army of god website and then you see christian nationalists finding accelerationist handbooks and having that knowledge now right and so they can have the knowledge and loosely collaborate without ever having to say oh i'm a part of you know And hate great front or the Proud Boys or whatever. Yeah,
7: like they won't see themselves as extremists. They'll see themselves as like regular Christians. They'll see themselves as regular conservatives. And what they're doing is like is like sanctioned by God, and it's like good, righteous, holy work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is definitely something to keep your eye on, because it's not all going to be like skull mask wearing people doing (laughs) bomb threats. It's going to be like regular like regular conservative Christians who are who are like been on this right words track the past the past few decades.
9: Most of the people that we track are are not part openly part of extremist group. Well not openly part of like known militant extremist groups, right? But um a lot of them are are hold office, you know? Sure. (laughs) There was Derek Evans was in West Virginia. You've got um John Jacob in Indiana. Like uh, the whole Oklahoma contingent, it, like uh, abolish human abortion has really just become a lobbying group that's trying to get people in office wherever they can. There's, I mean, they've gotten really strategic about getting people into smaller um, legislative roles so that they have more power to push things and and so that they look more respectable.
3: Yeah, and it's I, that leads kind of to another point, which is that when you get right down to it, once the ruling comes through finally as it looks like it will the vast majority of violence that's going to be done to abortion providers and to people seeking abortions and to people supporting them is going to be done by police like that's a, that's the eventual end game here
9: yeah and that's that's the thing i'm the most afraid of right because it's so much easier to turn somebody in than it is to actually attack a person physically yep. or a building <clears throat> even And so that's what it's going to be. It's going to be people calling in their neighbors, calling in something from the hospital, turning in their grandkids, you Mm -hmm. know?
3: Well, is there anything right now that's making you optimistic, Kat? Not to put you on the spot.
9: No, no, it's okay. I've thought about that a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, the people working in this are so dedicated to helping people that that always gives me hope. and. I genuinely feel like there's enough of us that have plans, (laughs) Um, you know, even if, even if not everybody's on board with the same stuff, there are enough people really doing the hard work and being pragmatic about what's happening and not just cowing under the pressure of it that are energized by helping people that I think there will always be people helping. They might not always be visible, but they're there and it's just going to be harder to find them. So.
3: Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to plug before we kind of roll out here? Any place people could send donations or volunteer if they're into that?
9: Oh, I mean, you can always uh donate to Abortion Access Front, We're dot org. And um there's a volunteer form there. But also if you want to uh participate in our event on July 17th, you can go to operationsaveabortion.com. Uh and there's a registration form there to get involved in the event.
3: Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Kat Green. You are amazing, and what you do is incredibly important. Um, okay. And to everybody else, um, go find some way to help. Uh, or, you know, at least uh, it, it's easy to pee in a water balloon. And, and Sorry, okay, well, let's get into that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
2: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
6: it happened here unfortunately yes nice nice great at this
3: nice introducing you you, you, you got it
6: yeah this is this is it could happen here at the podcast where it it has happened Um, (laughs) it sure um, does (laughs) i'm your host christopher wong (laughs) with me we have like seventeen thousand people uh we've got garrison yep we've got we've got we got Sophie hey we've got Robert Alleg- uh, allegedly <laughs> we've got we've uh, got shereen yeah. we have yeah. for the first time new friend of the pod Shireen.
10: hello new teammate Woo-hoo.
6: and we have uh ret- returning I think Yes. Yeah. Return, well, I'm, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think how many, how many returning, returning guests we've returning have, guests. but yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, Kieran, it's like yeah, Yes!
10: <laughs> and creator of our website that I love.
6: Yee. I'm so glad. I'm so
13: glad you like it. Love.
6: Yeah, and uh, we we are gathered here today uh, to talk about something that sucks, which is uh, the leaked draft of uh, Samuel Alito's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Ooh. It's
3: Now, we're all mostly angry that somebody dared to leak a a draft and upset the sanctity of the Supreme Court's deliberation process, right?
13: Right. That's definitely the thing that's been keeping Mm -hmm. me awake at night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
10: A
3: bunch of elderly ghouls who refuse to give up their grip on power can't deliberate in privacy. What does this world come to?
10: Megan Kelly, is that you? you?
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
13: Yes. (laughs) It's been me all along. How can I trust the Supreme Court if... Not everything happens in secret all of the time, always. My, on a serious
3: note, I I would like to start this by stating my primary attitude towards the Supreme Court is that more stairways should be greased. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, that's my contribution. We have
7: have been big proponents of horse lube for years. Um, Years. Years years and Mm -hmm. this stance continues um Mm -hmm. i think horace lube could solve a lot of problems
13: it could (laughs) so many
7: so i i do think it is uh, especially gross that like there's the whole side of media people who are making the story out that oh no look at this leak that is the worst thing to happen in human history i can't believe this got leaked and that is like pretty dominant uh narrative going on for like over half the country even yeah, it, if, right. even like even on like cnn
6: that was like the first thing it, it's pretty um, funny too because like the original road decision also got leaked like yeah. i don't think they yeah. had the text but like the, the way it was
13: gonna, the way the verdict was gonna go also got leaked it's like okay it's like this is actually consistent so and why it's, are it's we angry right. about this
3: it's clearly like i i get why the republicans are doing it right because it's a way, number one, that they can pretend to be victims. Uh, There's a lot of people comparing it to, like, the January 6th and shit.
13: Yeah, that's... Um... uh, Yeah. Sorry, it's... The comparison to be made there is not that the leak happened. No. (laughs) That's...
10: And, like, should... It's, like it leaked yeah okay how about the fact that the information in said leak is dangerous and is going to cause a bunch of people to die also
7: there should yes. be more leaks of government things all the time that's actually yeah,
8: a good yeah i I sign yeah, no, the... that yeah yeah
6: yeah the, the the government should not be allowed to keep secrets like i'm sorry okay does not you have have get a right to privacy. Like, like no unlike, no no well, not exactly. like we
8: they don't civil either servants? apparently <laughs> They're literally—they're yeah. called civil servants, and they're doing everything in secret. Like we're supposed to know. I mean, in the yeah. perfect world, but... they're
10: spying on us. We have no privacy. Yeah, but... yeah, exactly. <laughs> like ugh, whatever.
13: It's only fair. So
8: it's like, also get like over yourselves. I mean, I guess I, maybe we'll eventually find out who did it. But like, it's also we don't have to assume that it was a progressive that did it. For example, like I think the conservatives have even more of a motive to release it because they're like mobilizing their people to like agree and be like. Yes. <laughs>
6: yeah. Do, do we do we want to do the the the, the weird Supreme Court inside baseball shit? Like, yes. okay. So the the weird inside baseball shit is. So this is a draft decision, right? This decision like hasn't. This is this is not the law of the land yet. And the thing with draft decisions is that they change. And the thing that's happening here is there's this weird split. There, there's there's like a three two two split on like what actually is it three two yeah that that makes up seven right I'm like what actually like so the, the 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 five conservative justices like don't like Roe, but there's a, I mean particularly with like Roberts, there's a, there's kind of a split on like how far they want to take it, and so part of what could be going on here is that like so th- this the version of of the decision that got leaked is like this is basically the most extreme thing they could possibly do, I. In, in, With in, in term, a lot in terms of wide ranging
7: impacts on how we view personal rights, uh, in yeah. 2022. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's it, Which you I'm know, sure they like, can talk about it later,
6: yeah. And like, this is you know, this is the thing, like, like the the the, the nerd, like, Supreme Court watch- watchers, like, didn't think that like this would be the thing, right? They didn't think that they would just straight up overturn Roe. They thought they would chip at it a little bit first or like go after Casey, but like, no, 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 they're just they're just straight up going after Roe. And part of what could be the strategy here is. Like a lot of okay, so the the liberals on the Supreme Court like have been feckless and powerless for an enormous amount of time, and a lot of what they spend their time doing is trying to like get one or two sentences changed to be slightly less bad. And yeah. this could be an attempt to, to get the co- other conservative justices to like force them to rally around uh, Alito's like unbelievably hard. And the, the the other thing that's worth noting about this is that like Alito Alito is like. I don't know. I mean, Ka- Kavana- Kavanaugh. Okay, so for for a very long time, Alito was like broadly considered by the legal community to be the worst legal mind in the Supreme Court. Like he's a clown. He's like his his legal reasoning is is really bad. Like even even by this like you know and this this has changed with Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh to a, to some extent. But like this is not this is not a guy. This is not like a subtle like a subtle legal mind. This is like this is like a bull in a china shop who you throw out when you need to just like hit something with a hammer. Right. And so, you know, like, it, yeah, part part of what the strategy seems to be is to try to, to try to coerce the other justices who are like, s- like, like Roberts, who is like slightly less fanatical than Alito is to try to get them to rally around this like incredibly maximalist hard not only going after Roe, but going after like a whole bunch of other stuff that we will get to in a second. Yeah, so that, that that's the that's the sort of Supreme Court inside baseball shit that is possibly part of what's going on with the leak, but... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that's...
3: Whatever's going on in the leak, the the primary topics of interest uh, to most people are going to be, number one, the degree to which the right's trying to use this to distract from what they're actually doing. Yeah. Uh, And more to the point, the concerted... the fact Like, this is what what we're actually dealing with here is, like, the culmination of 40-ish years of pretty relentless... Um, a mix of pretty relentless electoralism um, married to a very effective direct action terrorism campaign that has netted the right, a tremendous uh, uh, win here.
8: Yeah. I mean, like, and I feel like this, it's a crisis, but it hasn't been treated as a crisis. And like when fucking Democrats campaign, this is like such an urgent matter. And as soon as they're elected, it's suddenly like not as urgent. Like, look at fucking Biden mm-hmm. he ran on literally co- like codifying it he ran with that promise and obviously that didn't happen um and then there's also like to Robert's point from earlier these justices are just like ancient and don't give up their power and i mean there's no use in pointing fingers even though I mean, like to we, do we, it so like RBG for example like if she had just retired at her fucking time maybe there would be like one more justice that could fucking help us out but
3: There's a lot. I mean, she's got her share of the blame. There's also the fact that we've had, I think, six justices appointed by Republicans in the last 30 years, and Mm -hmm. only one of those Republicans actually won the popular vote, Um, which was the goal. This is not just one of the most important things to understand about the anti-abortion movement is that it's not center, it, like it didn't start and is not centered around abortion. It is centered around reversing all social progress of the last century and the inciting incident was the integration of schools, yep. right? Mm-hmm. This all started over Brown versus the Board of Education. Abortion was just the thing they realized it was easier to rally people around than segregation. Um yep. and, and that's what we're dealing with right now. So the, the, fundamentally, this has always been an anti-democratic movement. This has always been about codifying into law and locking into place for essentially forever um, a minority rule in which Christian extremists would get to govern the much larger chunk of the country that does not believe in those sort of things.
6: Yeah, and, and I think that's also worth mentioning anytime someone talks about this because the media does like the media just runs PR for the anti abortion movement, which is that this is unbelievably <sighs> yeah. unpopular like staggeringly unpopular nobody wants this this is like this is this is less like you can pick if like this is less popular than invading fantasy countries that don't exist like if 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 you like this this is this is significantly less popular than uh than, 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 than uh, burning police stations down we have the polling data on that it's like 20 percent less popular than lighting police stations on fire like it is unbelievably staggeringly unpopular no one wants this except for a a very 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 well organized very politically connected very wealthy and very powerful clique of christian fascists yep.
8: yeah well the laws never reflect what the the most of the population wants though right like look, yeah exactly like the popular vote for example as you mentioned earlier so it's like i think there was a poll i was reading about this yesterday in june of last year 2021 68 percent of people thought abortion should should be legal for 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 any reason like there's no it doesn't have to be like any kind of thing so it's like it's and there's so many polls that also just like prove that most people don't want this hard and fast rule but yeah the both parties i think uh utilize it to rally together people to vote but obviously for different causes
10: yeah and like the the first reaction from 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 democrats was Hey, donate to our campaign. It's like, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah, the sudden flood of emails. Honey, read the room. You have all the power in quotes right now. And you've done nothing.
13: Yeah,
8: It's like vote blue. But dare
13: dare saying that and you get attacked by other Democrats by being like a radical leftist ruining movement because like it's not their fault. And I'm like, you you've had power multiple times in my 30 years of life where you could have done it easily yeah like like and this is this is one of the things that
6: like okay like this stuff doesn't work on me because i remember when obama had a two-thirds majority in this yeah they've got a filibuster-proof majority in the senate had the house and not only did he not do this uh obama by by 2010 obama is codifying anti is codifying anti-abortion stuff and codifying the hyde amendment
11: so mm-hmm.
6: yeah, it's like no, like and and th- this is the this is the thing with the Democrats, right? It's, like they this is the best thing that's happened to the Democrats since Trump left office. Like the Democratic Party, they love this. This is the best. This is the best thing that could possibly happen to them because now what they can do is they can run on we're going to bring abortion back every single election cycle, and they never mm-hmm. do it, right? Because yep. every single because they'll, they'll they'll never like the stuff that they run on. Like yeah, they'll 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 they, like they will even even if they got another somehow by like magic if they somehow got another sixty vote majority, they'd find a way to not do it because this this is this is a permanent fundraising thing for them.
13: Yep. Yeah. And they're Speak. they're desperately in need of money all the time, always. So if you take that away. Like during my brief stint in the California Democratic Party, fundraising was always a big deal and they didn't want to divest from fossil fuel and cops because then where would the money come from? Mm. You can't take campaigning on row away from them because then like they don't fucking know how to activate grassroots organizers. It scares the shit out of them. So they will be fucked if they lose this, which is why nothing has happened. Speaking, yep. speaking of money, do you know who else wants your money? That's
7: that's right. The products and services that support this mm-hmm. podcast. Wow, that's right. Care.
8: Wow, that
7: was great. Uh, and show. you know, uh, certain <laughs> may
3: make you infertile. So that's that's <laughs> absolutely <a benefit. laughs> not.
7: We are not doing this today. <laughs> We are back. Um, I think it's, we'll be, we'll be talking about Supreme Court abortion stuff for a lot, uh, in the coming months. Um, we'll be talking about various different facets of it. Um, different like mutual aid, like in ways of going about kind of filling in the gaps, which are going to become larger, um, and and a whole bunch of other stuff relating to like uh, right wing terrorism against abortion clinics and all that kind of stuff. Um, The other interesting aspect about this that I want to kind of briefly talk about is that with the specific phrasing of the leaked document, is it 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 threatens a whole like sect of personal rights, not just abortion rights, um, and could have far-reaching impacts uh, in terms of like privacy rights, in terms of uh, possibly even uh, backtracking on stuff like gay marriage and a whole bunch of other things. It's like it's. Obviously, the abortion angle itself is pretty massive and it affects, you know, half half the population. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that is indi- that, that indicates this like this trajectory towards this type of like right wing fundamentalist of uh, uh, Christian, like Christian fascist uh, effort to hack away at all the things that they deem degenerate or things that they deem as undesirable.
13: Well, I mean, the goal is to make America a Christian nation so Jesus can come back and rule it. And you can't do that if, you know, people are gay or people are allowed to be on birth control or people are allowed to marry outside of their race or go to school with people who don't look yes, like I them. Yes, like,
7: <laughs> I, I did read Jesus say all of those
13: things. Yeah, it's it's definitely in the Bible somewhere. Yep. If you If you do like that poetry style where you blot out some of the words to make other words.
7: (laughs) Which is most of the (laughs) (laughs) Bible. Yes.
13: The thing we got to
3: get into that I think is, is the primary question people have, right? Is like beyond sort of the doom scrolling of, of all of this and all of the fear about like, what's going to happen to Obergefell and Lawrence V Kansas and all this stuff. What are they going to go for next is like, what actually will work to oppose this shit? Right. Um, we, at the moment, I have not seen, and I don't believe there's any objective signs the Democratic Party is going to be particularly useful in stymieing any of this bullshit. Cinema no. um, no. and Mansion have already come out against uh, removing the filibuster. Uh, Mansion has come out against voting at all in order to codify uh, abortion access into into law in any kind of federal way. Um, and yeah, I, I get the sense that for most of them, it's a big fundraising opportunity. Now we do have, that's not to say it's all bad news because it is kind of, there's a possibility that this will have a, a significant impact on the midterms. Um, we got one kind of sign that where this, the, the, the race in Michigan that just ended, uh, the special district el- or the special election where... Um, For the first time in quite a while, a district that Trump carried by like 16 points went to a Democrat. Uh, Now, the Republican that they were running against was the guy who said that women should lie back and enjoy it if they were getting raped. Uh, So Mm. this is one of those like, I don't know how much we should see that as uh, particularly emblematic of how things are going to more broadly go. but. This does have there's an activation potential, right? Because outside of the fact that the Democratic Party, in a and as a whole, is feckless and primarily a, a method of fundraising for rich people, um, actual Democratic voters are rightfully horrified about what's going on. And this has there's a potential here to activate a lot of people and get them organized in a productive way. So I think that has to be on our minds. And and so there's a mix of. I don't want to discount electoralism, but I think that in the immediate term, one of the things that people are going to have to do is provide actual material ways for folks to get access to the health care that's going to be increasingly denied to them. Now... we had a couple of episodes earlier in the year with Michael Lawfer of the Vore Thieves Vinegar Collective. He's just gone viral in a Vice article about the hacked abortion pills that, that they've been guiding people in how to make. Um, I think stuff like that is really useful. When I started posting about this online, someone pointed out that um, pro-abortion activists in – Germany recently flew drones across the border to Poland to drop off mifiprostol, like wow. uh, uh, abortion pills, which were picked up by people in Poland. Um, and there's <laughs> there's some there's going to be increasing kind of organizing around that stuff like the Jane Collective. Um, people are already organizing and from like national organizations to increase access in states where it's going to remain legal for people out of state. So I think that's going to be hugely important. Um, Does anyone else have sort of ideas on kind of what, what things people can do and are going to be doing to push back against this? Because I I do think it's got to be twofold. It's got to be both, you know, pushing back in sort of a legal sense and also pushing back by direct action in order to ensure that people still have access to this stuff.
8: I don't know i don't have faith in electoral electoral anything uh so i really think like if there's if it's possible to find your own community and like just almost like with i don't know uh just mobilizing your actual peers versus like trying to trust anyone with power to get anything done because maybe i'm a pessimist maybe i'm just a pessimist but what you said earlier about the person she was running against what i heard is that that person was still running and people like he was still the number two you know and i think on the other side they are their side is also going to rally against stuff like didn't oklahoma just pass like yeah the most restrictive ban ever where like
7: just yesterday at time of recording yep Yeah. yeah
8: so in this law women can be punished up to 10 years in prison for getting an abortion and like in pair, like just for some perspective, rapists in Oklahoma get five years. So it's like stuff like that is happening in all these states. And because these states, people with with less resources maybe don't have the ability to travel so far, I think really mobilizing communities a little bit more, uh, maybe just more effective in my opinion.
3: Yeah. I mean, we have to mobilize communities, but you also can't, like it, it can't just end at we're going to try to like provide these people with an option to get out of the state or get access where they are like clandestinely. If it's limited to that, they're going to push to make all this more illegal federally and they're just going to keep throwing people in in prison and using the police as the enforcement arm of this stuff. There does have to be, there has to be a broader counter. You know, I'm thinking back to like, and I'm not talking about like picking a dude to vote for. I'm talking about like in, in Mexico, right? When they were talking about, um, making abortion illegal, activists attempted to light the Capitol building on fire, um, yep. and uh, like that, that, that kind of like there has mm-hmm. to be there has to be a broader. Two thirds of the country thinks this is bullshit. There has to be a way of getting those people organized in a way beyond dealing with the acute problems caused
6: by this. Like, yeah, I, and I, I don't entirely know what that looks like,
8: but no, that makes sense. No, that you're right. It makes sense.
6: Well, and I think I think that there've been signs that it's start like so I mean there's there's obviously like there were protests like there've been protests like literally since the thing came out. There were there Especially in one, DC. There's been Yeah. Stuff. also, I mean I think I think part of like and you, LA, you can yeah. see this sort of like yeah, with the D C one, you can see this sort of like I don't know, you, you can see the way that people haven't, I guess, fully internalized the fact that the state is just trying to do this to them and that like you know, if you look at the barricades that were put up Right. Like you could just push those over. Like the, mm-hmm. and, and there you, you had a bunch of people who were extremely angry and they sort of just sat there and did nothing. Right. And like, this is, this is the kind of thing that like, you know, if, if you look at what happened in LA, there, there was a lot of protests in LA and like the department, like Homeland security was on the street beating people. And I think if, if, if there's like, okay, so wh- one thing it's important to keep in mind is that this still, again, this, this, the ruling, the draft of the ruling is not the actual ruling, Right. There is still time right now in between when this in between this leak and when this is actually decided, th- there is still time to literally force the court to not do this.
3: So start <laughs> greasing those stairwells, people. <laughs>
8: yes.
7: Well, I think here's a few notes. Um, so one, I think that it's, it's going to be used to uh encourage action on all sides. Uh there's a, it's this is going to be seen as a victory for the right and they're going to use this momentum to mobilize further uh to to put more further anti-abortion stuff into law and to encourage people to take vigilante justice out on healthcare providers. Um, the second thing is direct action for uh, trying to alter the ruling before it happens like there is a chance to do mass mobilization uh there is a chance if we if frames if things are framed correctly you can bring a lot of liberals out and convince them and suggest to them that they can that they could do things that they ordinarily maybe wouldn't do uh there's that is an that is an entirely uh entirely possible scenario um just in my in my episodes about the atlanta forest from a few days ago i discussed uh, the shack method of protest now this this isn't this isn't this doesn't carry over uh, one-to-one because that is pretty focused on doing economic targeting but the whole idea of targeting people outside of like the political space is a uh, key to that like people people don't just do work in the supreme court they have actual everyday lives and if you can Uh, surround them in their everyday lives that type of personal pressure is way more uh, affecting than just yelling at a government building sometimes Um, because if we can dissolve this like safe political like space that people think don't think think they operated in right they assume that oh I'm a a court justice I'm a judge everything that I do happens in the courtroom right I am safe I'm contained everything is just in the confines of the courtroom I don't get to experience consequences for my actions outside the courtroom, uh, which isn't true because obviously the people, all of us, do experience th- those consequences in the real world all the time. Uh, just the people in power don't have to. So instead, if we can put pressure on people when they're going about their everyday lives, uh, in their hanging banners in their backyard, doing other things, uh, horse loop again, very useful. Horse loop. Um, that is a that is a way to do. Uh, types of protests that we have not seen as much. Uh, but I think is now is probably the time to start doing that, right? Um, yeah. I mean, we, we saw we saw stuff after the murder of George Floyd with people surrounding the house of Derek Chauvin, which police were very angry about. They um, did not so like that. No. There is an indication that hey, this the state doesn't like it when this happens Um, Mm -hmm. it's not it's not specifically more illegal to stand in the street of a residential neighborhood Uh, so no and it's you
3: know a a lot of protests so far has focused on court buildings uh, many of which are federal and those provide a lot of benefits to, shall we say, the defender, including the fact that they're already well set up for surveillance. They're generally fortified. Uh, they have a pretty short logistic tail to where the state is keeping its weaponry and its troops, as opposed to just kind of fucking with people in their lives, which is mm-hmm. a lot harder for those kind of militarized responses that lead to large groups of your friends getting arrested or beat up by feds.
6: I, I think also, like, yeah, yeah the, the, the tendency to go after, like, legal buildings is missing the point of where the actual power is like this mm-hmm. is the thing which january 6th too is like yeah even if, like yeah they took over the capital and nothing happened. and the reason that like nothing could happen is because it's just a building right like the the the, yeah. the the actual political system exists independently of it and you have to hit the things that the system actually cares about and so like that's ports that's roads that's uh border crossings that's things like uh why am i now suddenly vacation forgetting? homes um, yeah but like well like and also i mean like okay like you know if 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 there was actually like a way to stop this one of the few things that could actually do it would be a large would be something like a large scale teacher strike or a, a thing i've talked about before that is happening this summer is for example the, the 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 longshoreman contract in uh oakland is coming up right and like those are the kinds of things like if if you can actually start shutting down large sections of the us economy The Supreme Court are political actors. They will have to respond to this. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you can essentially like like you you can you can blackmail them into 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 doing the thing that they should be doing. You you can apply targeted pressure
7: economically and personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's the type of protest that I think it would be interesting to see where that leads us.
3: They need to not. They like the consequence for both the political actors who are carrying this out and the people who support them needs to be that they don't get to live a normal life um, yes. that they are that they suffer consequences for hurting people. And that means a, a lot of things. But among other things, it means that certain people shouldn't be going to the fucking grocery store without feeling the hatred. Mm-hmm. You know, Yeah, and I, think, I think they also, shouldn't like, be able
13: to order delivery and feel secure that yeah. what they're going to eat yeah. isn't going to hurt them.
6: Yeah, and and I think also like if, like one of the things that I'm remembering from that was actually really effective initially from the beginning of the Trump administration was the airport protests, mm-hmm. and that's a place that like you wouldn't think you'd be able to really occupy because again the, the amount of security there was enormous, but like if you have a lot of libs, mm-hmm. you can. I, I I remember like I was I was like standing in an, in, an, in an airport terminal and there was a line of riot cops attacking, and, like everyone is like oh we're gonna get attacked, but like there was just enough, like everyone just sat down and there was enough libs with like their kids that the cops didn't attack. And that's, that, that's a kind of thing that like potentially could be replicated and also could be useful given the fact that like sometimes cops have like an aversion to a like stuff that looks really, really bad on TV. Not, not always, yeah. but like, <clears> yeah, you, th- this is, this is the thing that can happen. It's a thing that like has happened in our like pretty recently yeah, we can I, do again. I, I don't really trust footage
7: of police brutality to change things anymore. Um I feel like we reached the peak of that in twenty twenty. Yeah. And at this point I think moving on to targeted pressure towards individuals that hold positions of power and targeted pressure to the economy, um is going to of ta- be where I mean, it's at
3: Speaking of targeted pressure to the economy, a large protest at an airport that the police exactly. break up with tear gas does damage to the economy that the Absolutely. police are the ones yep, causing. Yep. Yep. Um, and like, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things, as we've stated, a courthouse or whatever is just a building. People can not go into work and do all of the fucked up shit that they're doing on Zoom. Um, an airport is not just a building, you know? And so a protest at an airport, uh, has some teeth that a protest at a courthouse doesn't necessarily.
13: I do have one like quick other thing that I want to throw out as mm-hmm. sort of a means of uh, resistance or action is yeah. something that I was trained to do growing up part of the forced birth movement is co-opting the language that the left uses. And I think something that we should do and something that we can all be doing right now is co-opting the language back. So when forced birth advocates say they're pro-life come back with how can you be pro-life if you want someone to die by having a pregnancy and like just sort of taking words and rhetoric that has traditionally been used to oppress us to reframe it and be like no actually you're the one who's telling on yourself here and you're the one who is forcing people literally to die in multiple ways you cannot be pro-life if you support people who already exist dying and just sort of thinking about that a little bit, if you don't necessarily have the energy to go stage protest at an airport.
3: Yep. That is a great line to end on, end on, um, everybody, Go out. And again, you know, our sponsors are the Klein and Stubel hip surgery center in Washington, D.C. So please do keep gre- greasing those stairways, everybody.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: Bean Dad. The dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online.
12: side.
3: Oh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that's happening here right now in your ears. It could happen e- e- ear. I'm Robert Evans. Um I'm I'm not with any of my normal uh uh co-hosts today because because fuck them, no. Because I'm I'm elsewhere in the world right now, hanging out with someone you might remember from a special episode we recently did on Molotov cocktails. Journalist James Stout.
5: Hi everyone. Yeah, I'm here with Robert uh, in a tiny hotel room, and we've just woken up ready to do some podcasting. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, uh, we're not we're not here for any specific purpose. We just decided let's rent a hotel room, cast some pods, you know, hang out. Um, James, how do you feel about the border?
5: Negatively. Uh broadly speaking, I think the border is a tool that we use to harm and kill the most marginalized people in the world. Um I think that's kind of borne out by stats as well. So yeah, not a big not a big border guy.
3: Yeah, and, and you and I recently spent a decent amount of time on the Texas, Mexico chunk of the border, specifically near McAllen, Texas. Hanging out at a butterfly sanctuary that people can learn some things about if they Google will be coming out that those episodes will be dropping in the not too distant future. Um, but you live on the San Diego side of the border, um, which if people don't know San Diego, California is basically in Mexico. Um, you can, you can hop over across for like lunch and stuff if you really want to and don't mind dealing with CBP. Um, and yeah, so I, you've done a lot of reporting around the border and about kind of the, the system of violence that it represents. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit li- about that and I wanted to chat about some of the organizations that you've run into that are doing good work out there. Cause there's a lot that needs to be done.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think it's really important to like conceptualize what's happening at the border in terms of like uh the border is a tool for state violence right state violence against marginalized people and like what the the good group the groups helping people on the border represent is like ways of us helping each other which are outside the networks of us having power over each other right so uh, in the broader spectrum of like mutual aid of mutual support like i think they're really important to focus on rather than kind of so many people construct the border in their minds. Like uh, you can see, if you go back on my Twitter, some guy just being like, "That is not the border. The border does not look like that. The border is barren and it's desert and it's full of people with guns, <laughs> and it's really not right." Like, so the border exists as like this mental construct, a place where we can do like political theater, especially on the right. So people who are actually down there on the ground and understand it, I think it's uh, it, it's vital to support them.
3: Yeah, one of the more striking moments to me when we were in McAllen was. Hanging out near this chunk of border fence that had been constructed by, like by volunteers, effectively, um, and it's this, it's 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 what you would expect, like the stereotype of the border. It's this huge military industrial-looking thing. The wildlife has been cleared from around it so that you can have this towering steel edifice. But then, a hundred yards away across the Rio is the Mexican side of the border, and there's like. A couple of goat farms and like a little restaurant with a a little dock so people can like, you know, take their little boats out and people are drinking and there's party music playing and like it's, it's nice. It's pastoral and green. It was, it looked like a lovely place. It looked much nicer than hanging out by the giant steel tower.
5: Yeah, I found that all along the border, actually. Like, we our side of the border looks like something from, I don't know, like Blade Runner or something. Like, it's this giant dystopian steel construct with with people with guns, with watchtowers. And it's horrific, right? Like, it cuts through some of the most beautiful and important landscapes we have, right? Through the high desert, uh, through these very fragile places. Um, And and like, it's important, I think people understand as well what the border wall looks like, right? Because you've probably seen a photograph of giant ass wall. Um, And that is part of it, but they call it the border wall ecosystem. And what that involves is the wall itself, uh, sometimes a ditch, sometimes not a ditch. um, And then a road that's wide enough for two of the, F-150 Raptors that Border Patrol like to drive um, to pass each other, and then an access road to that. And then generally there's also an access road cut that allows construction vehicles to get to build all of that. So it's not just some spikes in the desert. It's fucking destroying this this beautiful part of of both of Mexico and the United States, right?
3: Now, before we get into some of these organizations, I'm wondering first off when did you start reporting on the u.s mexico border and is there any kind of specific events that that you can recall that really kind of ignited your your interest uh in in this particular like part of the united states in this particular part of like our ongoing social conflict
5: yeah like i've always been interested in borderlands like academically uh and in, in, as part of my phd um but i guess i'd probably about Eight or nine years, I've been reporting on the border. The thing that really sort of uh, took it from being like a... The border is sometimes a thing I write about. I did a lot of outdoor writing about the border too, right? I was very interested in getting more people to go outside in Baja, California. It's amazing. Um, And you should do it. But uh, what really sort of, I guess, made me be like, oh, fuck, this is fucking horrible, um, is the the 2018 quote-unquote migrant caravan, right? Um, So I'd been... Down just just enjoying a weekend uh, in uh, a little further south and a little further south of Tijuana and uh, having there's a really good wine country there so we've been checking out these these wine places uh, and and just enjoying ourselves um, and we come back and then these people are in um, what's called the Benito Juarez Sports Complex it's just a baseball field and it's raining and it's November and it looks like the fucking uh, like Battle of the Somme in there you know it's mud there are little children. And like, I've been in these situations before. I've I've seen uh, situations with displaced people before, but there was something that just broke my heart about like, um, so obviously we, we're going to go in, right? We're going to see what's going on. We're going to see what we can do to help. Uh, uh, and there were little kids. I remember there was this little girl. I um, mean, this one still makes me really sad, right? But she would find me. There were thousands of people there. Every single time I came, she would find me, She uh, found me the first day. Uh, and, uh, she would like uh we'd talk for a little bit about what she was doing. And then she was standing like halfway up her little shins in, in mud. And she didn't have anywhere to like shower or be clean, you know, she was living in a sort of tarp shelter, and it just fucking broke my heart. Um so I used to she used to like plait my hair a lot, so I'd carry her around. And that was just like this realization for me like of how cruel this thing is Uh, shortly thereafter of course the police stood in the parking lot of the Tommy Hilfiger discount store in order to fire tear gas at some of the most marginalized and desperate people uh, certainly in that part of the world right and just that
3: it's job. it's a scene that like yeah that would if you put that in a movie you would be like this is a little bit heavy-handed right yeah. Have, having them shoot <laughs> from the tommy hillfinger at the desperate migrants that's a little bit heavy
5: <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah it, it's it's just this advanced fucking parody of where we are as a society but yeah the uh the dhs helicopter is taking off from the tommy hillfinger store mm-hmm. to fire tear gas grenades at the at the children who just want a safe place to sleep
3: i had a moment like that in a protest where the portland police we were in um uh North Portland, um which is like in a neighborhood that was like one of the the fairly few like black neighborhoods in Portland, and the cops, you know, went ape shit and started firing impact munitions down martin luther king boulevard and i i I didn't catch myself at first, and I was like, the cops are now shooting down Martin Luther King.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: you've been in and around like you you live there, obviously, so who are? Like who are some of the folks that you've come across that are doing the most to actually help there? And what kind of help like is necessary? Cause I feel like one of the, one of the things I think is uh, the primary shortcoming of it could happen here is a show so far is that uh, the way Garrison and I phrase it is like a lot of our episodes are here's a problem. Goodbye. Right. Where we're <laughs> like, here's a thing that's bad. O- off we go. <laughs> like, so what, uh, I guess the two chief questions I think that need to be answered, because I'm I'm hoping pretty much everyone here is on board with the border is a nightmare. Uh, something's got to be done. What are the kind of things that can actually materially improve people's lives uh, who are being affected by this border ecosystem? And then who are the motherfuckers who are actually out there trying to unfuck things that to the extent that unfucking is doable here?
5: Yeah. Um, so I think like just to further like uh, make people sad first, like if you look up decolonial atlas southern border, mm-hmm. you can find this map of where migrants die when they're coming to the United States. Right. And we. Often it's constructed in the news media as like, it's dangerous crossing Mexico. It is. It's, it's dangerous coming across the Darien Gap. Sure, it is. But the vast bulk of people die within a few miles of our southern border, right? Um, and that's because, especially now with the way we've constructed the border wall, uh, right before the uh, 2020 election, Donald Trump in a debate made claims about how much border wall he'd built. Like everything else, he was full of shit. Uh, so they just tried to build as much as they could between then and the election. So they just skip the hard parts, they skip the mountains, they skip the valleys, and that often forces people to cross in the most arduous terrain. Right. So that that's increased the amount of people dying. Um, so we can look broadly at like two categories of support, right, which are like um, I guess like direct aid and then legal aid. So um, on the legal aid side, the guys who, guys and, and girls and other people who, who have been really really helpful. Uh, al otro lado, to the other side, right, their, their legal aid group, they, they were very, very cool during the, uh, during the migrant caravan, uh, like they, and I realize that's something of a loaded phrase, right, I'm just trying to use a word that people do understand, um, they were there constantly helping people with good cause letters, they were there filing legal briefs on their behalf, um, as a result of that, many of them were illegally surveilled by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, with, had their phones taken, uh, their communications traced, their movements traced, their network traced, etc. cetera. Um, they are wonderful people, right? Like they do amazing things with helping people get legal aid. Um, and then you've got the people who are helping people uh, while they cross, right? And there are a number of these mutual aid groups. If you're in a certain region, uh, at the border, there is probably someone near you. I'm no expert on all of them. Uh, but you can look at like Nomas Mas Muertes in Arizona, uh, Armadillos, uh, I believe, I think they, I don't know if they operate also in Texas, but certainly in, in that California, Arizona area. Uh, you can look at Border Angels, right? Border Angels are probably the biggest, most public facing one. And they are fantastic, right? They're out there making sure that there are caches of water for people who are crossing, making sure that when it's cold at night, there are warm clothes. And when it's hot, there are clothes suitable for that weather, right? Maybe a, a new backpack, canned food. They're, like, doing the active stuff that stops people dying. Um, and it's, that's invaluable, right? And it's also important in terms of showing that, like, they'll often write things I've seen, like, like you're welcome, right? Welcome to this country or whatever. Like, it's showing that most of us don't agree with this dehumanizing brutalization of migrants that the state is doing on our behalf. And, and so showing that welcome it's very important. There are lots of indigenous groups. Um, I, I did ask if I could name them, but they didn't get back to me, so I don't want to. But like, there were groups within the Tohono Adham Nation. There are groups within the Kumeya Nation. I'm sure there are groups within other tribes uh, whom the border crossed, right? Who lived in, in, in this area long before it was a border who were also out there helping people. Um, there are also individuals helping people out on their property, right? Um, if, you, if, if you can't find how to donate to one of those groups, you can reach out to me. That's fine. But... Yeah, I think the work they're doing is invaluable both in terms of like showing people that they are welcome and in terms of saving lives, right? More and more people die at the border every year, especially with things like Title 42, which we can get into uh with yeah, MPP.
3: Let's, let's, let's talk about what Title 42.
5: Is. Sure. So, Title 42, it's a public it's part of a public health law. It's very antiquated. I think it was last used in the 1930s the idea behind it was to stop people with tuberculosis coming into the United States. Uh, and if they have any, um, um, if they have an infectious or transmissible disease, I think it's called, then they can be immediately sent back without processing. Right. Um, this was part of a whole suite of things that they used to do to laborers coming North, right. They would also spray them with uh, all kinds of insecticides, uh, which obviously is not good for the health. Um, so Title 42, the idea being, you know, you get, like if you present to me at the border and I'm a border patrol guy and, and you're like coughing up a lung and, and obviously tuberculous, tuberculous? I don't know. You have tuberculous? Yeah, tubercule. Tuber- yeah. yeah. Uh, tuberculastic. Then I will send you back and just be like, no, Robert, fuck off until you're healthy. You're going to infect everyone else here, especially if I detain you. Uh, now, what it's been used to do with COVID 19 is to not process migrants, right? To do what's called catch and release, just bump them south and let them go. Uh, what that means is that these, so normally you could cross, surrender to a CBP agent, and that's another mis, misunderstanding, right? A lot of people will want to surrender, right? That they, they, they have no intention of not being processed. Um, for certain countries, there's something called a TPS, which I'll explain in a second, which, which there will be no reason for them not to be processed. Uh so these people will cross and now they could just get dumped on the other side, right? Doesn't matter if they are a person who is pregnant, doesn't matter if they're elderly, doesn't matter if they're medically compromised or weak, they can just get dumped. What this has meant is that um, people who are helping them cross, right? People who maybe charge a fee for helping them cross, are offering like crossings without limits. Uh, you know, we'll just try again. Guess where else to try again. And it means, like I said before, because of the combination of this and then this this hostile infrastructure that we're building, right? This border wall system that people will try crossing in more and more remote places, right? Uh, and that is when people die crossing It's when they cry and cross in, in places that are, that are hotter, that are more arduous, right? It, it requires days of walking sometimes in, in like, and I've been in that terrain. I spend a lot of my time out there and like for a long time, it's been more or less my job to be outside out there and it is hard. So if I imagine crossing with everything I need to start my new life and carrying my child, it's very difficult for me. Uh, and, and I'm more accustomed to it than most, so it, it's it's very difficult and forcing people to just kind of bounce back because when we drop someone in Mexico, right, if they are Guatemalan, Honduran, they don't have any network there, right? Uh, it doesn't exactly help. Like, uh, in, in like sometimes we like this construct that like the the border fuels, uh, crime, right? Or like crime is it? Like they they talk about like like uh sometimes cartels is far too broadly used. Nearly always, it's far too broadly used. Uh, but this idea that the border funds uh, like drug running an organization such as that, well, you don't fucking help by dumping someone where they have no other means of making a living, right? Where they're going to be very poor and now they don't have any mates. They don't have anyone to go to, to ask for help, right? Like I don't blame people for trying to find a way to do something. So like uh, understandably, like if, and I don't think, and I, and I think it's largely a, a lie that that any significant number of people sort of running drugs across the border are, migrants or, or um, you know, I think that's, that's largely a racist lie, uh, but leaving people dislocated there is a recipe for poverty. And I, I can't, you know, things like crime do happen more, I guess, when people are poor and don't have any other options, if that makes sense. If we go back to TPS really quickly, because I think that's important too, temporary protected status, right? Uh, you'll see people on Twitter talking about TPS. Uh, what that basically means is that they can't deport you back to a country, Uh, So it took Biden an obscenely long time to grant a TPS for the people from Ukraine, right? 500 and something people went into the deportation system between the time in uh, like November, December, when Biden's administration started being like, there is going to be war in Ukraine, the Russians are going to invade Ukraine. They were still actively in the process of sending people back to Ukraine at that time. It wasn't until about a week into the shooting war that they said, okay, temporary protected status, we won't send you back. It exists for other countries. It exists for Haiti. uh, It exists for Myanmar, Burma, right? I don't know if it exists for Syria. I think it does. Uh, But these countries where basically, like, we won't send you back there. Um, And and TPS is very important, right? Because it it stops people being deported to places where they will die. Uh, And it's important to understand that, like, you could have everything right in terms of your asylum application, and still be sent back. It's a cruel and and very impersonal system. So TPS is important. And if you're into sort of advocating for laws, then it's an important thing to advocate for, I think.
3: Yeah. um, In terms of more, I think that's important because we, we the kind of the electoral side of things is not does not tend to be our focus here, but it's also not useless. Like the border is one of the areas most clearly where you can see both how advocating in that realm can immediately improve people's lives and also how both sides of the political spectrum use the border as a weapon to hurt Pete.
5: Yeah, exactly. The border is definitely a stage for both sides political theater. Like look at Joe Biden, right? He's coming in, he's signing this declaration on the first day. I remember the day he was inaugurated. I went out to the border wall, sat there by myself. and and like wept because it's just this horrible ugly thing uh there's such a scar on a place that i love um and uh he's done fuck all right he's he's deported more people than trump and he's he's building his own biden barrier which is the same thing without an anti climb plate but yeah like even if you don't agree with the existence of laws and lawmakers right there's this concept um that i like a lot called normative anarchism i think it's wolf the guy who wrote it but like We can move towards a state doing less cruelty and being a little more free. And that is a move in the right direction, even if it's not the end goal. And I think the border is a place where you can really make a difference like that, right? Like some small changes um, in how things are done would reduce the cruelty to people who have done nothing wrong massively. So I think it is an area where even those of us who might not be generally inclined to like electoral stuff like you can i think i don't know if you can make a distance because like so many people in milwaukee are watching fox news and are fucking completely convinced that the border is just uh i don't know people with guns trying to smuggle children or whatever but yeah it's an area where small changes in policy make a huge like title 42 right not even a law it's an executive or it's not even executive order it's an interpretation uh the wall right most of that shit wasn't built by congress it was built by executive order so like That stuff, I think, is uh, a place where you can can affect positive change for people. Now, unfortunately, we've got this giant fucking wall, and I don't think it's coming down anytime soon, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't actively try to make things kinder for people coming here.
3: Now, on the direct action side of things, which I, I think more of our audience tends to support, one of the most obvious things is just like setting out as you said like drops of water food equipment now that's kind of depending on where you are can be shall we say complex from a legal standpoint can you talk to that a little bit
5: yeah certainly so like the obvious cases are one in arizona right which eventually ended up uh the person was vindicated but um I guess vindicated is the wrong word but
3: not didn't go to prison
5: exactly okay. yeah <laughs> yeah um what he was doing was right from the start but uh yeah, it can be complex. I think especially if you're in some of these states which are like uh, doing culture war, right? Like Arizona and Texas. Uh, yeah, the 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 cruelty is kind of the point. So if you are doing something to alleviate that cruelty, making an example of you is very much in the interest of those culture war politicians and judges and, and other people, uh, which is why it's important to do it with a mutual aid group, right? Like these groups are not just like uh, randos. They are extremely organized. I would also just caution that like, Going out into the desert on your own is extremely fucking dangerous. The desert can kill you with heat and day. It can kill you with the cold night, sometimes on the same day and night, right? Uh, this is a hard place. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't go out there. You should. It's, it's an amazing place, but, but you should be careful. You should go with the group. So uh, if you're living somewhere along the border, there is a group of people who are doing this. They will understand what is legal and correct. Like For instance, if you are not a citizen, if you're a green card holder, you should probably not go down to the border with jugs of water. You should maybe do some fundraising. You should you should maybe do something else, uh, and that's fine, right? You're still part of a system which is helping people. Um, but yes, there have been some prosecutions. I think in California there haven't been any, to my knowledge, for a while. Um, there was also some interesting tech developments. Uh, one a few a long time ago now uh, called the transborder migrant tool, which was mapping out like. What at the time, we didn't have the border wall then, right? But like water caches, locations of CBP checkpoints. And then I guess it was using Google Maps to make routes, uh, which uh, it, it was created by a faculty member who at the time was at the University of California who faced pretty terrible career repercussions for doing it. Um, but there are things like that that people can do too, right? Which you can do from your bedroom if, if that's your preference, if that's how you prefer to help. But yeah, I would caution about just going out there. Always look for groups, right? There are people for whom this is their entire life of activism. You can also, I'm sure, uh, I hope I'm not putting a bunch of like work on their plate, but talk to Alotrolado, see what they suggest, right? Talk to who? Uh, Alotrolado, the other side, yeah. that's this legal aid group. Um, you can just call them. I'm sure that they're their things. They've been very helpful to me when I've been, uh, when I've needed help for, for people I'm working with, uh talk to them about what is what is legal and sensible and what is not whether it's better to give your money or, or give your time or, or or what you can do given the resources available to you i guess and you can also just show kindness to refugees in your community too like they're probably there um whether or not they're visible is is a different question but that's you know there there are places where you can help people uh another one i should mention actually just for folks who are inclined to help in a different way, I guess, is, is people just feeding people. Like, I really don't think you can ever blame someone for feeding a hungry person. So food, not bombs. Food, not bombs are always cool, right? Uh, if, you, if you want to do kindness without state, food, not bombs, there is one in your area. Look them up. Um, and World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres, the chef. Um,
3: yeah, he's in Ukraine, right? His guys just got shelled in Ukraine.
5: That's right, yeah, yeah. A number of them got shelled in Kharkiv, I think. Um, those people, like... Uh, I do understand that he has some labor issues.
3: Yeah, although I think he's he recently like came out and said that he had been wrong on that. I'd have to double check, but
5: yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Like uh, I've said this before, this dude pivoted his whole life after seeing what happened in Haiti to feeding people who are hungry all over the world. So I do believe he's capable of change, and hopefully he can change and treat his workers with decency and respect as well. But anywhere i am right where there is a humanitarian crisis right? inside the u.s outside the u.s those people are there first they're there before the red cross and msf they don't seem to get tied up in the bureaucratic shit that most large uh global ngos do like i've been in refugee camps where msf and red cross are outside not doing anything
3: yeah if you uh I- anywhere i have been where there are large groups of refugees refugee camps people dealing with violence the uh the most commonly cursed groups are often NGOs
5: yes yeah yeah uh, there there are you know people in in white land or people in fancy hotel mm-hmm. lobbies you know like and uh, that makes me very angry and very sad but i don't see that with wck like uh i have consistently seen them in just pretty dire situations you know like t- times that uh give me bad sleeps you know and they're always there helping people so then there are also church groups in lots of communities like i'm not a religious person but like i really can't fault any of these church groups that i've seen coming down from san diego to tijuana to feed and help people but i would probably stay clear of those giant ngos with your giving i've just seen them be considered bureaucratic and less effective
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the rules, this is harder when it's a conflict far from home and you, you know, you see some news that makes you want to help, but you don't have any connections. But if you can ever talk to people on the ground there, it's always best to ask them like, who's actually doing anything? Um, Because sometimes it is MSF, you know, sometimes uh, it, it is one of these larger organizations, but oftentimes they'll tell you like, you know the 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 group when I was in Mosul that got the most consistent praise from people who were like living there was um, the Free Burma Rangers, right? Like there were all these massive international organizations, but when it came right down to it, the people who were like running under gunfire to pull wounded civilians out were you know those folks.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah, those those guys do some do some very brave stuff, definitely. Um, and yeah, it is normally you can find people on Facebook. Like I've never been in in a sort of situation with a lot of displaced people where people were not actively on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find people there that just just like you, they just want to have a chat. And it, again, it's nice to have a chat.
3: That's such an important point too, because I think that number one, people are often, and it, it's easier, right? Like everyone has limited time, but you kind of leave it to whatever media you trust to connect you to people in these desperate circumstances. And like people tend to want to connect who are dealing with something like that, who are fleeing violence, who are, and they also are connected. Like they're not separate from the rest of the world just because they've had to leave their home behind. And they're not they're generally not excluded from the information networks that we all exist in.
5: Yeah. Um yeah, I think and sometimes they're portrayed as like, um, we talk about them, not to them, far too often in the media. And that makes me mad, right? Like I see that all the time. I see that happening when I'm doing reporting, right? I'll see people hanging out on the peripheries of these camps. I understand some people are worried about COVID or whatever, but <laughs> so are those people, right? Like uh just be safe and be sensible. And yeah, they, they, these people want to talk. I remember one thing that always sticks out. Or well, they want the same things that we want. I remember. So in this 2018 migrant caravan, they were moved from Benito Juarez Sports Complex to this old nightclub, uh, a bit further south, but further away from the border. Right? And it was a very weird scene. It was this big nightclub with like uh, the mirrors and the, the dancing poles and the disco balls. But it had been like mothballed for like ten years. It was all dusty. And they had a special room for um, people who were pregnant, and people can people who had had children. Uh, And and the the young children themselves, right? They were sort of just to keep them safe. Um, And we would go in there and it was weird because there were still like mirrors on the floor. Um, But then I remember these kids, you talk to them, right? You know, what do you want? And like, first of all, one kid asked me for a teddy bear and it just broke my heart. Like, I don't know why it just fucking leveled me. Uh, And then they wanted to like, you know, they'd enjoyed the same Disney films that kids here had, right? So my buddy... Uh, managed to acquire a projector. And we went into the ceiling, rigged up this projector and just set up uh, like Beverly Hills Chihuahua playing on one wall of this nightclub. And these, these kids were like, fuck yeah, it's Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Like, let's go. Like, the, you know, they were just kids watching a film like like, like they can be anywhere else. And it, it's really easy to see them as like different or weak or, you know, the way they're portrayed in the media is like people without agency. And they're not. Like they've taken huge amounts of agency to try and improve their lives.
3: And it's also so much focus is on these things that aren't, you know, medicine, food, that are necessary, but like having a m- normal moment where you're like a kid watching a cartoon or playing with a toy is also necessary.
5: Yeah, like these children will be scarred by their experiences, right? By whatever's caused them to flee, by the flight itself and by the process of coming to the into the country. But yeah, we should do everything we can to protect them from those traumatic experiences. And just play, like, I cannot count the amount of times I have been like, shithoused in a game of football by six-year-olds trying to come to the United States, right? Like, so things like that. I remember someone donated a couple of football goals, and I took them down and set them up. And then, yeah, just having those moments of normalcy, those moments of fun, uh, like little little plastic ukuleles and stuff, like, were very important because it let kids be kids, and, and that's, you know, they have every right to do that.
3: Well, uh, James, I think that's going to make a sode for us. You want to throw your pluggables in before we roll out?
5: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to plug like like I said before doing things to help people outside of networks that let people have power over people uh, so do that first and then yeah you can put my name James Stout into Twitter and find me I have a Patreon by the same thing I write about the border a lot you can see it in um, if I just plug one popular P-O-P-U-L-A uh, I wrote about the 2018 migrant caravan so you can read my writing there uh, feel free to message me if you want to find any of these groups and you can't yeah that's about all
3: All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Uh, Go do something good.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer-founded, queer-run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
1: Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs.
2: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
3: Oh, uh, yes. The podcast has started.
10: Oh, this, is the this, start? this, is, this is This is It Could Happen Here.
3: This is It Could Happen Here. That's right.
10: And you're Robert Evans. We also have Shereen Lani Eunice and Christopher Wong with us. Christopher?
6: Hi. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of running the show today, even though Robert right. has... You're right. Done the intro question mark? Um, <laughs> always with a question mark. That's how the pros do it. Yeah, you can you can tell, you can tell professionals. Yeah, uh, but speaking speaking of professionals, uh, we have we have Karina Dominguez with us, who is in fact actually a professional and has spent eight years working in uh, reproductive health issues. Uh, Karina, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us.
14: Thank you, thank you for having me.
6: It's lovely to have you on.
14: Yeah,
3: Karina
6: what's uh what's going on
3: how are things
14: <laughs> uh, things things are okay i think i can say That's, um, that not doesn't great. seem true yeah <laughs> <laughs> but they're okay <laughs> um yeah okay cool i, I pulled a yeah, guy out talk. of a crashed truck
3: once and as i was trying to like staunch the bleeding from a cut in his hand i asked how he was and he said okay so I'm, I'm guessing it's that kind of okay.
14: <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah,
10: Karina, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do, and you know why, why, why we we desperately wanted to have you on the show? Yeah,
14: I would love to. So again, my name is Karina Dominguez. I am from Chicago, born and raised. Um, I've worked in reproductive health for um, about eight years, but really what I consider about fifteen years or so. Um, I have experience in working in the community in different capacities. Um, I love reproductive health. I consider myself a reproductive health nerd. Um, And it all started when I was a teenager growing up in Chicago, where just in the city life, you see a lot of things that don't really sit well with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew a lot of young girls who were getting pregnant at young ages, experiencing trauma and specifically sexual trauma. Um, and not knowing who to go to or where to go. So these were mostly young girls of color who I cared for a lot. And I immediately knew that I wanted to um, do more activism and that I needed to do more activism. And the way my activism looks is through my education. So today I have a master's in public health um, and I also have a bachelor's in public health. And with that education, I've been able to provide sexual and reproductive health counseling. I practiced as a full spectrum doula where I've provided abortion care for people and also um, provided birthing care for people as well. I led a pregnant parenting program at a nonprofit for youth experiencing homelessness. And right now I currently manage a sexual and reproductive health grant where we provide resources to treatment centers in the LA area to integrate sexual and reproductive health for patients and substance use disorder treatment. Wow! Cool. So we are slacking. Mm-hmm.
10: That was an impressive. <laughs> list. Yeah, yeah.
3: You know. and I, I think the well, thing thank w- you. that uh, made us want to chat with you, we were we were having a conversation. So when the news first dropped that uh, the Supreme Court was yeeting Roe v. Wade into the sun, um, there were a couple of different news agencies that did like in turn you know while talking about what options were going to remain for people that would bring up crisis pregnancy centers which are um shady as hell as i'm sure we're about to talk about but yeah so that's that's kind of why we brought you into what we brought you on initially to talk about i wonder do you want to kind of introduce folks to what those are because the gist of it is if you like google how do i like find out if i'm pregnant or like you know, I'm pregnant and I need help, there's a good chance old Google will take you to one of these places. And they are, shall we say, not what they seem to be.
14: Yes, I think we can exactly say that. Um, And I am just going to say it in the most direct way I possibly could. A crisis pregnancy center is essentially a fake medical facility (laughs) that preys on vulnerable people, specifically people who can become pregnant. So, yeah, you know, we can use the term fake medical clinic. Um, I, for the purpose just of using the most common term crisis pregnancy center, I'm going to stick to using that term. Um, But yes, there are a lot of concerns about this. And I'm sure our friend Google will pop some up for us really quick. Um, So crisis pregnancy centers usually have names like women's pregnancy center or women's health center, something health center. um, And it's a very misleading advertisement. So they are anti-abortion facilities that manipulate people into um, having a full-term pregnancy. So these places are usually religious-oriented. They have a religious agenda, and it's not patient-led. So some of these larger religious-based organizations that fund these, what we think are smaller, tiny clinics, are agencies or organizations like CareNet, Heartbeat International, National Institute of Family and Life, Birthright International, and Rama International. So a lot of times you might think you're going to this small little tiny clinic, or maybe it's even like a community medical mobile unit. And it turns out they're backed by big money and bigger agencies. So they typically will implant themselves in communities of color, um, near college campuses, and low-income neighborhoods. So What is that saying? That's saying that this is a woman's issue. This is a trans issue. This is an LGBTQIA issue. This is a BIPOC issue, black, indigenous people of color. And it's simply just an issue for everyone.
3: Yeah. And it's so one of the things that's kind of messy about these places is that if you look at like investigations into how they work, you'll run into a number of stories of of women who are like, hey, I actually like. Always intended to go through with my pregnancy. I just needed to like know that number one know that I was pregnant, I needed a test or something, and these people advertised that they would provide that for free or they advertised that they were providing stuff like diapers, you know, basic kind of supplies formula for free. Um and some of them do, most of them do to some extent, but nearly all of them have some sort of like and this is outside of kind of the abortion aspect access of it, have some sort of fucked up hoops you have to jump through in order to actually get access to any of that stuff.
14: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up like the diaper uh, point. I think that is a really essential thing because they don't
3: not give out stuff. Right. But it's it's messier than they want to portray it as. Yeah.
14: Yeah, totally. And and it's a form of manipulation. Right. And I think, too, it's a form of manipulation to to deem yourself a full functioning medical facility where they actually don't provide those comprehensive services and Sometimes you know they might even say on the outside like HIV testing, SIV, um, STI testing, HIV testing, um, and they are simply not evidence-based practices. So what I mean by an evidence evidence-based practice is something like condom use. We know very well at this day and age that condoms are essential to prevent STIs and HIV transmission. So a lot of these clinics, they might even say like condoms don't decrease your chances of STIs. They don't really matter. They're not really doing anything. And that is a really big piece of information that we need to know as the average person, because that means we have a lot of young people going to these clinics and having even their foundational sexual health education at these facilities. So this is a really, really important thing to take note of. Um, And I would say that, you know, a lot of people even in my life that have gone to crisis pregnancy centers by accident um, are, you know, being told that they can do STI testing, HIV testing, and even birth control. And then as soon as you go there, you realize that's not what's happening. Usually it's going to be a lot of pregnancy related services like ultrasounds and pregnancy tests, which we know if you're an actual clinic, that's those aren't the only things that someone would need for essential Um, healthcare. But I would say even more like going into the manipulation and um, the gaslighting that they do within these facilities, which in my eyes is medical violence. um, They provide even mandatory ultrasounds, make someone sit there to look at the ultrasound. They make fearful videos of misleading information about what abortions are and sometimes even have someone who's not a medical provider showing what an abortion is in their eyes. And the video may be of a baby that's whose limbs are being ripped apart. Um, Even giving information like abortions can lead to breast cancer or if you have abortion, you'll never be able to have a child. And this is your one and only opportunity. Um, And sometimes even going further, you know, they are sneaky in what they do because they might even have programs that'll say parent program um or youth sexual health program. And even with that, they're giving religious-based agendas. Um and they are telling people misinformation about sexual health and even so might even talk about um very heterosexual sex, marriage, all of the above. So there is a very specific agenda that is going on here. Um, And we know, too, that a lot of these agencies can be really sneaky with what they're doing because they may even deny that they are a crisis pregnancy center. And even further, if you go on to their website, they might not even have any language that they're religious based or that they are um, not providing comprehensive services. So there are a lot of different tactics that are, you know, within the the Manipulate manipulative strategies that they use.
6: Yeah, wh- one of the things I've heard a lot about is, like, basically, like, f- f- not, not literally physically forcing, but, like, terrorizing people into signing, like, fake legal documents saying they won't get an abortion. Which, like, really, like... Every description I've heard about that is just, like, this is just terrorism. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's... Just-
14: Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I find that to be really interesting. I've never heard of that happening, but just because I haven't specifically heard of that does not mean it's not happening. Um, and I think that, you know, they're, they're not all made the same. Um, they all function differently. And I think that's also what is really confusing about them because they're not consistently all doing the same thing there are still other facilities that they might do STI testing. They might do HIV testing. And so to hear that is not shocking to me um, and the manipulative tactics that they are using for people. And yeah, I mean, HIPAA goes out the door, you know, any legal backing goes out the door with these facilities because they are not based on providing patient led services in the first place.
8: Maybe this is an ignorant, ignorant, uh, train of thought but if they're providing all of these like free-ish services or like whatever to these people that are desperate and um it sounds like a lot of them are like privately funded by these organizations in the shadows like what how do they benefit like where like what is there other than like imposing religion on other people but like uh, like financially and like I'm, i'm confused where how they're still like able to function
14: yes They function very well and without a problem. Um, And as I mentioned, there's five larger organizations that are funding a lot of these CPCs, but they are also, um, this is to be noted, they are on the CDC website. They are on the CDC directory as places that provide essential services. So I think that also goes to speak to the confusion around CPCs. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to give the CDC benefit of the doubt, although they do not deserve that. <laughs> and yeah. say that um, they themselves may not recognize what it, what these agencies are doing. And so I think that's where the awareness around the actual function of the CPCs and how they even exist in the first place needs to be shut down and awareness needs to be brought about these places. And And we know that 13 of them are funded by their states. So they are getting direct government money to be able to function. And then on top of that, also functioning with the backing of those larger organizations. Wow.
6: Are they getting federal funding too? Like, I have some vague memories of like Bush administration programs that were funding just Trevor, right?
3: I mean, if I'm not
6: mistaken, Mm -hmm. Trump pushed a bunch of federal
3: funds towards these facilities.
8: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I wonder. Oh, go sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was just, I was wondering, like, I wonder if there's a, um, like one or two things you need to qualify as like a, uh, what's what, how did you put it on the website? CDC, uh, um, like they offer like services. Like maybe it's like, oh, this place has an ultrasound. These are like, this is why this is on you know what I mean? Like I wonder if they just like pick and choose the bare minimum of things to like qualify to be um considered among like people that offer like full-fledged care. But mm-hmm. I don't know, it's it's all a scam. I don't, I don't
14: trust yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think that also is just a really um I, I like that you bring that up because I think that would be a really ignorant perspective from the CDC to think that a place that gives a pregnancy test or an ultrasound right away is not necessarily your average healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. Um, When someone is going into an appointment, typically, you know, they're not getting an ultrasound right away. Typically, your average person who might think they're pregnant and is going into a medical facility is going to do a pregnancy test. Sure. But they're not just going to immediately the first 20 minutes you're there do an ultrasound. Um, and especially knowing our healthcare system and the United States, you know, that might require referrals and another facility to get that done. And, and, you know, that depends on what your insurance is and what you can pay for and et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's a really big red flag to just have a facility, that has pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. That to me is, you know, if I see on a website that those are the only two services that a healthcare clinic is claiming to provide, I'm running away and I'm not going there because that's very odd.
3: Well, and it, it's very manipulative because it's, it's one of those things, one of the ways in which you can tell is something healthcare related shady as fuck is mm-hmm. does it? take advantage of the fact that very basic things that you need are extremely expensive. Um, and like ultrasounds, pregnancy tests, this can all be like STD tests, you know, can all be really, really pricey. Um, and it's just so like, it's fucked up that this is kind of how they're funneling religious dollars towards taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people like legitimately some people who use these facilities, I don't know what else to tell them. Cause it's like, well, well, We don't provide people with a lot of options in this country everywhere, you know, for for some of these services. Yeah,
14: totally. And I do want to go into some of the people doing the work. And I want to really highlight what they're doing. Um, So I want to give the utmost credit to two people um, who I do not know personally, but would definitely love to. Um, Dr. Andreas Swartgen-Rubber and Dr. Danielle Lambert, they're both associate professors at the School of Public Health at University of Georgia, and they're both co-founders of the CPC maps, which originated in 2018. So, yes, there's a brilliant map where you can search the CPCs that are close to you. Um, And in my eyes, this map is truly a piece of gold because I myself have found ones that are in my area. Um, and was very beneficial when I was working with clients myself directly and would refer people to different services. So this is a really great tool for healthcare professionals and social service workers, et cetera, to refer to. Um, And I can't even explain how grateful I am to know that there's ongoing research about the distraught impact of these clinics and the distraught impact they have on our healthcare system and the ability to find an abortion provider um so again i hope that every service provider can find these this map um and use this map and really spread awareness around this so um what i want to highlight and what these two uh, doctors have found is that just to give some more context every single state has multiple cpcs multiple not just one not two multiple there are 2,500 CPCs and uh, throughout the United States. And that is obviously a much larger number than the health departments in the United States. And, you know, as I mentioned, we know the CDC directory utilizes CPCs on their website. And again, 13 states are funded or are funding CPCs. Um, So their advertisements are going far and wide, Um, And to even go further in the state of California, the California Women's Law Center says that there are 20 percent more CPCs than there are abortion clinics. So I think in this time, yeah, yeah, we should be scared. That is that's a really concerning statistic and especially looking at how we are going to be and already are a haven state. We are going to be a haven state for all the states around us and for people throughout the United States. So what is that saying when we are a haven state, yet we are still competing with our local anti-abortion strategies ourselves? We are still putting up a fight as a haven state, and I think that is so concerning. Um, And even further, just to give some more statistics, we know that 58% of the clinics that CPCs, that did not offer STI testing also will not refer out. We know that only 8% offer HIV testing. And 92% that did not offer HIV testing also did not refer out. So just to summarize those numbers for you, what that data is telling me is that these clinics are not accounting for the health of the pregnant person, nor are they accounting for the health of the fetus if that pregnancy goes full term. And yeah, I mean, I, I have even, you know, more stats as you know your reproductive health nerd um of one of my favorite research institutes called the Gutmacher Institute, and they are phenomenal and have really great data um and if you haven't checked out their website, you definitely should um but since we're on the bandwagon of talking about religious based affiliations, we know that seventeen percent of abortion patients are oh sorry um <laughs> Okay. Um, 17% of abortion patients identified themselves as mainline Protestant, 13% as evangelical Protestant, and 24% as Catholic. 38% have no religious affiliation, and the remaining 8% reported a different religious affiliation. So let's summarize that. Religiously affiliated people are still seeking abortions too. Would you look at that? Ignorance is so bliss. We know that abortions are affecting people who are living in poverty and who are low income. So we know 75% of people that are seeking abortions are either living in poverty or are low income. Um, and fortunately, you know, throughout the past, we know that Medicaid has been a really big funder of abortion care. Um, and especially we can say that in California too. Um, that about 24% of abortion patients are using Medicaid, and that's throughout 15 different states. So I imagine in this time right now, too, that number is probably going to decrease. Um, so again, talking about a haven state that has these resources, we are probably going to be mixing up how that looks. Um, and knowing that 53% of abortion patients pay out of pocket for their procedures. Is already a very concerning statistic. And so we are seeing how, in our time right now, we have to be looking at different resources for people. We have to put on our activist hats. We have to be supporting our community and we have to be supporting abortion funds because already 53% of abortions are paid out of pocket. Um, and just to, to summarize one more point 88% of people who are using abortion services are going to be using those within the first 12 weeks. So um, we are needing to see a lot of activism around abortion pill distribution and abortion pill education and what that looks
8: like. No, the... To like piggyback off of what Robert was mentioning earlier about how it just feels like they're taking advantage of the fact that like things cost so much money, and I feel like if you, this work is so important because I don't think a lot of people know what they're getting into if they're like, because we don't have a great education system in general, let alone about like reproductive health or like what happens when you get pregnant. So if you're a young person or I mean any age and you are desperate or you're feeling shame and you don't have support from your community or something and you f- see a th- institution that's like free ultrasound or like whatever it's like they're preying on this desperation and i think one of the only things you can do to like combat that is like try to educate people as much as possible that like i don't know (laughs) people are as um they don't have the good will and good faith that they present to be to have and i guess it just like ultimately you have to be distrusting of people and maybe that's sad but it's the truth
14: yeah, definitely. And I will say I feel like I saw that as a service provider. Um so as I mentioned, I worked in homeless services specifically with youth homeless services and you see that so much. You see how there is, you know, medical oppression for people of color. There is medical manipulation and violence for so many people in vulnerable situations and as someone that has accompanied many people to abortions and births, I have observed that myself and I have seen how more people than not are going to experience some type of medical manipulation. And especially if you are living in poverty, especially if you're a person of color, especially if you're LGBTQIA, this, this issue does not just stop, you know, it, with CPCs, if we take out all the CPCs, we also have to address so much of the institutionalized racism and all the things that exist around reproductive health, um, you know, starting at how to get contraceptives to when can you have children and how can you be a parent? And that never ends throughout the cycle, you know, and that parents, even after they have babies, even if they are a person of color, even if they have, are LGBTQIA, you know, they are still told how, when, where they're going to parent. Um, and there's so much control over that rhetoric for people. So, you know, I, I mean, that even goes back to me thinking about the uh, sterilization trials that happened against USC in the 70s and how women were forcibly sterilized and, you know, that has nothing to do with CPCs, but instead we're seeing that institutions are finding this control and having these agendas and it is not serving our society. It is not serving our health. And instead it is creating more trauma in our communities. And it's, it's crisis pregnancy centers are just one of many layers of medical oppression that we are witnessing in today's world. As a person who was working in homeless services, I was program planning for a lot of the resources that we were able to provide access to for my clients. So all of my clients at that time when I was running the pregnant parenting program at a nonprofit, they were either pregnant and or parenting while also experiencing their housing insecurities. Um, so. I strived to find what the proper resources were for them to support them in every trauma-informed way I possibly could and that were youth-friendly. So there was a local agency that was very, very close to where I worked. um, And their services always kind of felt like limited to me. So I met with them specifically to inquire because they were always trying to find some type of partnership with us and would knock on our door or call me. So I finally was able to give them some of my time. Um, and so their services always felt limited and non-comprehensive. And I think that is the, the biggest kind of like takeaway. Um, they always gave me really weird reasoning why they didn't provide birth control or STI testing. And based on their answer, as I mentioned, I just did not allow the partnership to thrive. So when I did more research, I actually confirmed from another service provider that they're from another agency that they were indeed a CPC. Before I could spread the word, they also already had several partnerships with other homeless service providers. So they wiggled their way in. um, And these other homeless service providers were also working with young, vulnerable clients. So one day I was actually invited by another agency to come to this presentation where I didn't realize happened to be the CPC. um, The CPC was presenting at this organization and it was one of their outreach workers explaining what their services were. So I took it upon myself to make sure that I sat in that meeting and I asked questions in the room with the other service providers. I think there were about 30 other service providers that were present. And I asked, Out loud, why doesn't your clinic provide birth control? And the woman from the CPC, who was the outreach worker, said, "We can't give Pap smears, so we're unable to provide birth control." If you know anything, side note. If you know, I yeah, I already see the (laughs) (laughs) the questioning, (laughs) which I'm glad I received that reaction because that is the exact
8: reaction you should be getting.
10: Audience, those of us with uteruses went,
8: huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all of our heads tilted and our eyes were squinting. <laughs> we're like <"Expl- laughs> uh,
10: ah. exactly. <laughs> please, please explain
14: how that math doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Side note for all the listeners, if you know anything about healthcare, you know that a pap smear is not associated with being able to be prescribed birth control. So as someone that has background in healthcare, has a master's in public health, Worked as a doula. <laughs> I continued to push back during the presentation. And it was very, very clear that I was onto to something. Um, so this woman, again, she would always try to like come around, give me pamphlets, try to p- have us partner and say she really want to work with us and our youth. Um, she stopped after that presentation, I can tell you that. But anyway, so I keep going. I reach out to the person who organized that presentation for the CPC outreach person to attend and speak at. So I was like, I need to get to the bottom of this and I need to spread this word um, and tell people, hey, you're getting people from CPCs to come and speak to you to advertise your services. Um, So I CC'd a lot of the other service providers And I expressed my genuine concerns to the lack of evidence-based comprehensive care they provided. But unfortunately, the person who I emailed said, clients need to make sure those decisions are their own so they can decide if they want to go or if they don't want to go. We can't force them to say yes or no to go to a healthcare facility. So I responded by asking, but what if you thought you were seeing a doctor for your healthcare needs and then it turns out the healthcare provider is providing misinformation and might not even be a healthcare provider? Um, I never got a response from them, but I still continue to make sure that I was reaching out to everyone at that meeting and just raising awareness behind it. Um, And then I wanted to take it to um, I wanted to take it a notch up. So I called both of this, both of the locations of the CPC. One is located in Westwood, side note, next to UCLA. The other one was in Mm -hmm. South L.A., side note, community of color. Both of my calls led me to the person on the phone telling me that they don't know where to send me for an abortion and that they didn't know where what Planned Parenthood was, what they did, or where they were located when I specifically asked. So they were obviously circumventing the ability to even talk about abortions and what it was. Um, and that was all the concern that I genuinely needed. So in my present day, I'm still concerned with these clinics, this specific clinic that is Local to me, I recently found out that in my present day work, there are currently three treatment centers that are using this crisis pregnancy center as a resource. So, hopefully, that means more to come because I will be working on this. And in this scenario, what I am doing as an activist and as a person who cares for my community is I will be educating these treatment centers about what crisis pregnancy centers are and how they can avoid them and what comprehensive services actually look like.
6: Have there been more sort of widespread, like, organizations who are working to, like, A, let people know what they are, and then B, also trying to get them, like, not to be funded?
14: Absolutely. There are. And we need to shout them out. Um, There are – there is an abortion fund um, in California called AXIS. They are wonderful. Um, they provide abortion advocacy and awareness and education, and they also provide direct services, um, and fund different, they fund abortions in different capacities. So they might be funding the abortion services, the lodging, the transportation, and even a doula, and they partner with a lot of other agencies that are doing the work. The agency is called Reproductive Transparency Now, and they are a Chicago-based nonprofit. They provide a lot of information, data, awareness, research um, to raise awareness around what CPCs are and why we should be avoiding them. And I think I can say that I have the same goal as them in my personal life, but to ensure that they do not exist and are all shut down. Um, so they are wonderful. I would highly suggest looking into reproductive transparency now and also active, uh, sorry, access, reproductive justice, um, who are doing a lot of really great work. And then I also do want to squeeze in other resources um, for Please. people as well. Please. Yeah. Um and, you know, as I mentioned, first and foremost, I think the number one thing we need to know is that Crisis Pregnancy Centers should not exist in any capacity. Um, but if you are a person who's providing resources, who is working with clients, who works in healthcare, treatment centers, whatever it be, please utilize CrisisPregnancyCenterMap.com. Again, this is the, um, the website that was created by two associate professors at university of georgia and i want to make sure that this spreads far and wide um, because it will be the matter of providing referrals and circumventing cpcs um, and i want to acknowledge that a lot of my data from this from the information that i've been speaking on is from the crisis pregnancy center map.com um, and from reproductive um, transparency as well um so first and foremost that map is a necessity um, another resource that i would like to share to be able to find your state's abortion fund is abortionfunds.org and you can search state by state so you know i'm in california So that's going to be access, again, an organization that is an abortion fund, but they do more than than fund abortions. Um, I also really encourage people to find their local evidence-based doulas, midwives, women's health practitioners near them. And I know that there's a lot of fear existing right now due to the inappropriate politicians that are making disgusting decisions but know that abortion pills can be accessed and there are people that can help guide you through. Um, So I would say making sure that we're accessing the resources on a website called plancpill.com. It's a great resource where you can find where to purchase abortion pills and where to seek medical and legal support as well. So if you have a question about how to take medical abortion pills, or you need to understand the legality of your state and the area near you, you can you can look on this website um, as a resource. Um, I just also want to emphasize like what community care looks like right now. Um, if you are a person who can get pregnant, this is truly a time to seek preventative care. And I know that that's a loaded can of worms for a lot of people. So I just, I really want to plug this in. If you would like to learn about pregnancy prevention, you can take a look at bedsider.org to assess your needs. I would highly recommend pairing that with talking to a provider who understands your lifestyle and can support you with finding one that works best for you because every single contraceptive is going to look a little different. If you're a person who does not like birth control, I want you to know to please still seek preventative methods. Um, whether that's a barrier method or whether that's more so of a holistic method like fertility awareness method, I encourage you to still speak to someone you can trust to ensure you're using that method correctly. And again, there are doulas and midwives that can help guide you in the right direction for holistic practices. Um, and to continue on to my community, uh, my community kind of uh, recognition, I Hope that this is also time where if it's feasible for you to, if you can't yourself find um, friends and family that you trust and people around you um, to either receive yourself or to get it from other people, um, have pregnancy tests around you and make sure that if you feel like you might be pregnant, um, whether you are using an actual method or if you're not using a method currently, make sure you at very least have pregnancy tests around you and, um, so that you know you can detect early on if you are pregnant. Um, normalize buying your friend's pregnancy tests for their birthdays. I have, we just have to normalize that as a community and normalize buying abortion pills in case someone you know might need them in the future, or it might be someone that you don't know who could use them um, and to have that accessible if that is feasible for you financially. Um, And then, yeah, I I think just to summarize, like, this is truly a time for community support. And when the government doesn't support us, we we need to figure out, unfortunately, how.
3: And um, if you got. The ability, go get a go get go get snipped. Uh, You know, there's there's options out there. Um, There's
14: options. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I, I I provide vasectomies, by the way, if you can just find me in my house. Um I'm not good at it yet, but 15, Practice 20 more perfect. people. Yeah. I'm gonna not, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure it oh, out. Oh, that's what I gotta, that
10: room is for. That makes sense. Well,
3: <laughs> I got one of those Yikes. I got one of those sharpening wheels and my butter knives are pretty this is worse fucking worse. they got a good edge. They got a Genu- good edge these days. <laughs>
6: Genuinely incredibly disappointed. disappointed you're not using the machete for this. This is this feels like a betrayal. <laughs> well, there's
3: other reproductive health care I use the machete for, but <laughs> That 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 does have to do with crisis pregnancy centers, actually. Yeah. But.
14: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll have a bunch of referrals for you then. I know where to send them.
3: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that kind of leans into another topic I'm covering today. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us. This has been very enlightening. Um, I wish uh it wasn't such a bleak subject, but people need to know the fuck's going on. People needed to know this a lot earlier, but, you know, I mean, th- broadly speaking, the thing I keep coming back to in this whole fight is the frustration of like, the rest of us, Like, we have, life's hard enough, there's like so much going on, people are like busy trying to, trying to get by, trying to do their lives, trying to like find pieces of happiness in the world, and there's this fucking group of the worst people in the country that have just made this, made fucking access to reproductive health care up for everyone, the focus of their entire life for 30 years. And unfortunately, now we have to like do that, make the opposite the focus of our lives because we kind of just, not all of us, obviously, like you've been in this fight for a while, but most of us kind of were not paying as much attention as needed to be paid. Um, Like most people in the, and I'm not trying to throw blame on folks, but like clearly the majority of People in the country who support access to reproductive health care weren't paying enough attention. You know, yeah. like that's the that's the only way to frame it.
14: Totally. And it's almost as if we are picking up the mess yeah. that others are are creating. Um mm-hmm. yeah. And and you know, after experiencing COVID as a society, everyone's a public health professional now and a mm-hmm. doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I it's, am a see- doctor. <laughs> Clearly, Clearly yeah. 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 I'm sending referrals to you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and people have a lot of things to say. And with that being said, I'm really glad that that these are conversations being had. I'm glad that friends around me now who I've never known to talk about reproductive health are going there and talking about it and also opening the door up for. You know, people like me to talk about evidence-based practices and what the reality is and and who's doing the work and um everything that that focuses around reproductive health. so i I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate that there are podcasts discussing this information. It's necessary, and these issues are not going anywhere. And you know, we're going a little backwards. so I, I really appreciate your time on this.
3: Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. And um, all right, everybody, that's the fucking episode. Go do something else.
0: (laughs) Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
2: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
12: oh all
7: right well joe started i like that these intros are getting shorter every every
6: time yeah we've gotten <laughs> oh. it onto one syllable so there's not much room yep. where we can go from you, there look
3: you know what an honest an honest man only needs one syllable sometimes less sometimes half a syllable we'll eventually get this down to just grunts That's really what I'm moving towards—is
4: an entirely. Shouldn't we be moving towards like telepathy?
3: Yeah, telepathy. We don't even record a podcast where we just like put up, transmit the
4: information instantaneously.
3: (laughs) Just a blank audio file that says, "Now think about farming."
4: (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, I must say that that sounds very um that sounds very sci-fi. And um, that's my way of doing a slick segue here. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Because today we will be talking, and I'm. Very excited to talk about this. Um, She's one of my favorite authors. Um, You know, I really enjoyed discussing the ideas present in old Huxley's work, but this one has a special place in my heart. Today we'll be taking a look at Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents and
11: the yeah. themes and
4: ideas present within. Yes. <laughs> Back at you again with another podcast banger. <laughs> but... First of all, um, hi, I'm Andrew, um, sometimes known as St. Andrew. I'm kind of trying to rebrand as something else, still figuring that out. (laughs) Um, And you can find me on YouTube at St. Andrewism. But this episode is not about me and my branding. (laughs) This episode is about Octavia Butler, born in 1947 and growing up in... Segregation era America, she became an award-winning sci-fi author. Um, with a lot of influences and a lot of themes and ideas being covered in her work. Considering the very white, male-dominated scene that is sci-fi, the fact that she was able to not only break into it, but also present some things that haven't been explored before in with angles that haven't really been explored before. Um really um, has touched a lot of people. She was somewhat Afro-futurist, but she was also very much, um, a lot of her stories really blended. Um, A lot of people have a lot of different backgrounds and and, and histories. And she always managed to work aspects of herself into her main characters. Um, She was a big critic of hierarchies, um, which really draws me to her. And um, she also, very relatably, has at times struggled with writer's block and depression. She wrote over two dozen essays, speeches, short stories, and novels in her time on this earth. But unfortunately, she had a stroke and died in 2006. One of the, or rather, two of the books that have had the most, of hers, that have had the most impact on me, and of course, I haven't read her entire bibliography yet, but hope to get to it, um, is Power of the Sewer. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about it. It gained a lot more relevance um after, you know, as climate catastrophe continued to accelerate as, you know, we drew closer to the year that the um book is set in. And with regard to the second book, as we had, you know, Trump come into office. Um And I'll get into why that's relevant in a bit. In the first book, um, just to give a brief synopsis, global climate change and economic crisis has led to a whole set of social crisis and chaos in the early 2020s. Um, The book is set in California and they are struggling with pervasive water shortages and masses of poor people will do basically anything to live to see another day. Everybody is struggling so basically today in this setting 15 year old lauren olamina lives inside a gated community with her preacher father family and neighbors sheltered somewhat from the surrounding chaos however when we hear gated community now we think of you know like really rich people but in this case gated community is just like a regular community that had to put up a bunch of walls to prevent, like, pyromaniacs yeah. from, like,
3: really... Yeah, it's like a... It, it's a suburb that used to be, like, a well-off suburb, but as things got worse, it just turned into people hiding behind their walls because they were scared of poor folks, right? Like, it's... There's an Pretty element <laughs> of it that almost reads like a slasher movie in the opening of the book, which is one of the things that's really compelling about it.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. They really... um. She really gets you invested in the setting and in the character early on. And part of what really gets you invested in Lauren as a protagonist is the fact that she suffers from a unique vulnerability or strength, depending on how you look at it, Um, oftentimes vulnerability, and that is hyper-empathy syndrome, um, which is basically that she's able to feel others' emotions, others' pains. So when others are very, very sad, she feels very, very sad. Uh, when others are in pain, she feels that same excruciating pain um, and so on and so forth. And so she has to fa- sort of navigate this chaos world while dealing with this, um, with this um, disorder that she's struggling with. At the same time though, she's also navigating faith and the idea of faith and and philosophy because her father is like a preacher and he is the preacher of their little gated community. And so she has grown up in the church, but she also has found issues in um, the religion that she grew up in, places where she thinks it has sort of led people astray. And that's kind of also what has drawn me to Lauren as a character, because I too, you know, have had to negotiate and navigate that whole religious realm. And so that's basically the setting. She's in this community. um, It's chaos on the outside. She's navigating her hyper-empathy syndrome. And she's also dealing with the ideas of religion and change and so on and so forth. So as she's there um, sort of thinking internally, she's keeping this journal. And she's developing this new system of thought, which she calls Earthseed. And we're going to get into Earthseed, but it basically shapes uh, the decisions that she makes and the outcome of both books, and as well as how they progress throughout. The second book places her in, I'm really trying not to spoil, uh, which is difficult to do because the second book leads directly after the first book and so on and so forth. But I'll try to speak in broad brushes because I really think people should go and read it as blind as possible. Um, Lauren, of course, eventually we will get into spoilers, by the way, so I'll I'll try to let folks know when we get into that. But in the second book, um, Lauren is working on a community um, founded on her faith, Earthseed, and they begin to face persecution, I'll say after the election of this ultra-conservative president who vows to, quote, make America great again.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Being, you know, a young black woman in a minority religious faction in the United States of America, um, her colony becomes a target of President Jarrett's reign of terror. Um, And at the same time, Lauren's future daughter is navigating the discovery of the mother that she didn't knew that she didn't know through the journals that her mother kept through the years and i think i'll leave it at that there are a lot of themes that you know butler covers in these texts um and in fact i've seen them described as butlerian which i would agree with cuz she covers them in other books of whose as well in different ways um, she talks about poverty and slavery and freedom. She talks about perseverance. She navigates the this idea of community and what community means, what, how community is both a balance of inclusion and exclusion at the same time, and also the whole cycle of creation, destruction, and rebirth that really defines human history. Right now, well, in that book, so in the setting of that book, um, slavery has made a comeback more than it already has. You know, you have these extreme forms of debt slavery and marital slavery and probably even plantation slavery. Um, I believe plantation slavery is mentioned in the second book. Um, and of course, the slavery is inflicted upon the poor. And yeah, and a lot of, like, company
3: town-style slavery, yeah. right? Where people yeah. are, like, bonded, bound to a specific location because of their employer who protects them in this increasingly dangerous,
4: bandit-filled world. Yeah. Exactly. And in this world, you know, race remains a factor. Even though these books are written in the 80s and 90s, I believe. Parable of the Sowers, uh
6: 93 and yeah, purple is 98. 98, yeah, yeah,
3: right, right. So, again, like he's got or, or Butler has a character using the same phrase Trump would win the presidency on. Um, what is it? Uh, 24 years before the start of his campaign. Um, hard to overstate exactly. the degree to which she was ahead of the curve on a lot of things
4: because, I mean, to be fair. She knew America. Oh, yeah. You know, she grew up in segregation year America. Yeah. She had to deal with, um, her mother was a domestic laborer. And so she had to go in with her mother in these rich white families, places, through the back door. Um, and, you know, obviously that would have shaped how she saw herself and herself in relation to the wider world, through, to America as an idea. And so I think that as she's writing of this, you know, sort of horrific future, she's drawing a lot from her horrific past, or rather America's horrific past, of which her history is a part. So Lauren, who is in some ways Octavia Butler's self-insert, spends a lot of time in the book, in both books, allying with people are also minorities who come from mixed backgrounds people who are tend to be overlooked by the dominant christian religious right white um order because i believe she finds some sense of safety and strength in people who have been so maligned slavery also ends up affecting lawrence community too Um, in many ways that I don't want to spoil. But despite it all, the theme of perseverance is really what carries the story along. (laughs) Lauren ultimately is the archetype of the perseverer. You know, she preaches a sermon on the importance of perseverance. She tries to get others to see the importance of hard work and she sticks to her goals no matter what happens. And a lot happens that would, quite honestly, discourage a lot of people, to put it lightly. And yet, she perseveres. And so to tie that in as well to American history, um, particularly in the first book, she ends up having to make a journey north um, to Northern California. And throughout that journey, she, you know, she meets with other people and interacts with other people Um, She makes allies and avoids enemies. And you could honestly draw some parallels to the Underground Railroad. Of course, it's not an exact one-to-one. But in the sense of having to work with people along the way to progress out of a terrible situation, a hellish situation, for the hope, not the guarantee, but the hope of some form of salvation when you get to the end of the journey. She doesn't do it alone, she does it with others, um, and that's kind of what keeps her hope alive. But it's not just external, she has a lot of intrinsic motivation to persevere, which is driven by her philosophy.
3: I, I mean, I think one of the things, cause, cause there's there's a lot of meaning in why she picks the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents for, and it, it's pretty obvious in that's the context right. of the books, It's she's not like hiding it under layers or anything. But one of the things that in particular the second book deals with um, – I mean in the first book too to a degree is kind of the um, the pointlessness of responding to dystopian change in society by just like hunkering down in a bunker and trying to hide from it and protect your family. Like the, exactly. one of the reoccurring themes is the degree to which that doesn't work. And and one of the things that's really interesting about this is a dystopian novel Um This is a a novel that is – both of these novels are kind of imagining the collapse of a lot of aspects of American society. But it is not – at no point does the United States really collapse in these books. And and even like as much as authoritarianism is present, at no point is the government completely taken over and completely under the control of like a unified fascist regime or anything. Yeah, like Like elections
4: are still happening, campaigns are still going on. The police yeah. still exist, but you know you still have to pay them to you know for them to pay yeah. any attention and, to you.
3: And and the the like Christian death squad type things that are roaming around are are distinctly non state actors. They have backing to an extent from the state. They're not really right. opposed by it, but it's, it's 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 again it's this thing that we we are actually dealing with where collapse doesn't look like okay everything's fallen apart and now it's whoever's got the strongest group of buddies who can who can, you know, do their best in the wasteland. It's like, no, no, no. It is about groups of people trying to navigate in an increasingly dysfunctional state and the the only way to actually survive that is um survival's complicated and it's never as simple as just like picking a good farm to hide on,
4: you know? That that's, exactly. that's not going to work out for you. Exactly. Exactly. I just wanted to point out as well that as dysfunctional as things are, oh, people are still going to work. Not just the people who are, you know, in company towns or in debt bondage, but even Lauren's father, you know, he takes his bike every day and rides out into that chaos to go and work for a wage to come back and to try to support his family. And of course, in this gated community, we see that their attempts to stay gated, you know, is ultimately futile. Like the rich Mm -hmm. have their high security communities and they're able to escape in helicopters when Mm -hmm. anything happens, but... They have no security even in this illusion of security and that hunkering down strategy they were taken wasn't working and the first half of the book really shows why
3: yeah it's um it's it's a it's a book about collapse by somebody who's uh who who grew up in a situation where her her childhood had a lot of elements of the collapse that many particularly like uh, fo- many folks are concerned about now like that's what she grew up in was there's no there's no protection violence uh, can come from all sides and is random Um and you have no there are no guarantees in this like world that you've come into which is this thing that like people are freaking out about now as we encounter kind of aspects of the the world order that we had grown up with that we feel like are falling apart and i think the thing that's so compelling about butler is her books kind of are coming from the perspective of someone for whom that order and that world were never real
4: yeah yeah and that's why her contributions to sci-fi are so valuable mm-hmm. you know because all of these sci-fi writers are just like regular privileged white guys and you know and and they just come with that experience and it's an often um, repeated critique of, of sci-fi. Um, you see it in tweets and so sometimes, where like a lot of it is just like, particularly like alien-related sci-fi. It's like, whoa, what if white- the things that white people did to other people happened to white people? <laughs> you know? Like this whole idea that these alien invasion um, fears and alien invasion stories are just like, what if colonialism, but to white people, to rich countries... You know, Mm -hmm. another part of the reason that the, um, attempt to hunker down and stuff and basically exclude others, um, from their community failed is because, and Lauren writes this in her diary, exclusion breeds resentment among the excluded. So even though Lauren's neighborhood, while, you know, gated and wall and stuff was not particularly rich just the mere fact that they had those walls up basically signaled to the outside world that they had something to hide some sort of resources they wanted to safeguard, even if the only thing they had to, to safeguard were themselves because a lot of the members of the community were you know unemployed and extremely poor, that alone sort of symbolized uh, sort of it was sort of a beacon um drawing people to eventually um, attack. And that's a slight spoiler, but yeah. And, you know, despite the problems that exclusion ends up causing um, Lauren, mm-hmm. as she realizes that her community could not handle that approach, even then, as she's progressing north and stuff, and she's debating with herself, you know who to bring into her fold. Exclusion and inclusion—they they play a, a role. You know, um, she has to find form bonds and you know stay safe. But at the same time, the bonds that she forms could put her in danger if she's betrayed or if the people that she invests in end up being harmed in some way because the harm that they experience will ultimately affect her as well. So as Lauren is making her way up north, she is continuing to wrestle with this idea of inclusion and exclusion, because as she's progressing north in hopes of, you know, building a community of some kind, creating, joining, forming a community of some kind, she's also forming and establishing her Religion, like I mentioned before, it played a major role in the community that she came from, and in fact, novel points out that one of the reasons people are attracted to you know religion to Christianity in this chaotic time and in general, really, is because it provides hope, and hope in the form of an afterlife, and hope is what people really, really need in these hellish 2020s that they are dealing with. The Lauren comes to realize that the hope and the hope in the afterlife ultimately isn't enough for the people that have invested so much into it. Um, One of the people in the community um, ends up, despite being a staunch believer, that um trigger warning, by the way, for Suicide. Um, despite being a, a strong believer that you know suicide is a sin and send sending straight to hell, she is so lost hope and can no longer trust in. Has been dealing with so much pain that she ends up taking her own life. And she takes her own life, and as Lauren remarks, she takes her own life knowing, um, or at least believing, the pain hereafter. And yet, she finds it more of a reprieve than the pain she was experiencing here now. And so, as Lauren is witnessing these things happening around her, um, is dealing with, you know, loss and her baptism and her father's commitment to the church, she is continuing to develop the idea. Of Earthseed, and she begins to contrast Earthseed from Christ- with Christianity, um, and particularly in the sense of how the two religions address hope and change. In Christianity, you know, they have the hope um, of the afterlife against this brutal life, life, <laughs> now life. Whereas Earthseed simply presents the central principle. God is change. That's the first principle of Earthseed. Second is that shape God. So first, you have to recognize and accept that change is inevitable, often destructive, but you could also recognize you have the power to shape it. Um, And so from that comes the third principle, which is to to, um, pursue the destiny. The destiny being the establishment of humanity on other worlds. And to be quite honest, I um, as this is one aspect of, of the philosophy of Earthsea that I think I, I diverge from. Um, Lauren, of course, has a lot of focus on the heavens, as in the cosmic heavens and scattering earth seed which is you know humanity across you know all these different planets establishing ourselves in different worlds but i feel as though the destiny is in a way i wouldn't say distraction but i think it's it's a a misplaced um a misplaced hope i guess
3: I mean there's that's kind of one of the points of the book right because there's in especially in the second book there's a lot from the perspective of her daughter that kind of shows how as as much her philosophy is a really understandable and in some ways admirable adaptation to the completely fucked up times she was born into it's also in the same way that a lot of other people's philosophies become, you know, and that her parents and stuff uh, are earlier in the first book, it's a way for her to kind of justify not paying attention to the people in her life and not not taking proper care of them because she's got this thing that's bigger than
4: them that she works towards. Um, And you really, by the the end of the second book, you really have to sort of contend with the fact that, you know, you sort of have to grapple with how things with her daughter will handle in the Yeah. End. I guess I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. And yeah, um. Um, that's part of it. I mean, she's so dedicated to this cause, to this new religion of hers. Um, and, you know, she's recruiting people into it. You know, she's selling people least this hope, you know, that follow see, believe in a destiny. Eventually, you know, space is going to become the real life heaven we could actually get out there and make a new start for, herself, for, for ourselves. And that's part of it as well. Part of the whole idea of the destiny is, you know, a fresh start for humanity, a sort of a maturation of humanity. This idea that, you know, once humanity establishes itself in other worlds, that it would have um, grown up as a species.
3: Yeah, and it it's one of the things that I... I really respect about these books that I think a lesser writer wouldn't have been able to pull off is that the degree to which that beating you in the head with it, you see her as first failed by the philosophies and ideologies of her parents' generation and by the, um, the systems that people had gotten stuck in. She's very much a character who grows up in a world where all the adults are stuck um, yeah, essentially like a system that has become a death cult. And she has to figure out a way out of it, which she comes to believe in so much that in her own way, she becomes stuck in that new thing. And it renders her unable to see certain things that are important. And the book never portrays her as completely right or completely wrong, because that's just not how civilization works. Things just yeah. change over time. And you know, the, the ideology that her parents and the adults are all stuck in in the beginning of the book is an ideology that worked to a degree at some point in the past, um, which is just it, it it's it's it does a really good job of of showing a number of things, which is kind of what it's like to be a kid realizing that the adults have fucked you, what it's like to become radicalized um and realize that the world doesn't have to be the way that it is and what it's like to let that radicalization lead you somewhere to where you miss important things like there's so much going on in the evolution of what the characters believe in this book that is is just masterful from a, a storytelling standpoint
4: yeah and i mean the second book really does a, a a good job showing her sort of blindness as well when it comes to mm-hmm. things going on because what Ends up happening, one of the worst incidents in that second book is something that, of course, not to victim blame, but it is something they could have prepared for a bit more. Yeah. A lot more, actually.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, they're good books. They are books that you will, if you're like me, you will start reading them and you will get really into the first book and then you'll take a 10-minute break to like check the news and something will send you into a panic spiral and you'll read the next two books getting increasingly depressed. It's good. Well, it's a good but The next
4: book. Because, <laughs> I mean, the third book never released.
3: Yeah, she never quite got to make it.
4: Yeah, and I'll get into that as well in a bit and how it ties into the destiny, right? Yeah. But just to reiterate, you know, first principle, God has changed. God is not a person it doesn't love or hate or watch over us or know us. It just is. Second principle, shape God. God is malleable. God is power, infinite, irresistible, inexorable, indifferent. And yet God is pliable, trickster, teacher, chaos, clay. And truly emphasizes that change is neither good or bad, but it is potential. And we could, And we have a choice to either be a victim of change, a victim of God, or we can become a partner of God, or we can become a shaper of God, or we could just stay as God's plaything, as changes prey. It's unavoidable, but our actions can shape its direction and speed. And in the end, change prevails. And there's a comfort in that. Because once we un- understand that we can return that effort. The inevitability of change can be what thrusts us forward. And I think, um, I think people who are invested in, in activism, in organizing and just revolutionary work, I think there are aspects of see that I think can be very motivating, very impactful, very energizing. Because despite, you know, how circumstances play out, um, there's a recognition that we are never entirely disempowered, you know? And so, like, just the last point I want to get into about the destiny. I think that's what would make me, if I were to be in this world, I think that's where I would diverge from the Earthseed Orthodoxy. Because, I mean, Lauren talks about how, you know, history is just this repetitive thing. We have all these wars and kill a bunch of people and impoverish others and spread disease and hunger. And her whole thing is just because that's how it's always been, that's mean we have to accept that we can choose to do more, make something more of ourselves. And to her, making something more of ourselves is establishing ourselves in other planets. So, if she is Earthseed Orthodoxy, I suppose I'm an <laughs> Earthseed Protestant. Yeah, <laughs> you're a um, reformer. I think. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> Earthseed <laughs>
3: Martin Luther nailing your theses to, I don't know, the door of her house in Seattle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would be
4: a reformer of the, of the destiny in the sense that I to the destiny could be creating a heaven here on Earth, like, rather than pursuing a cosmic heaven. I don't think it's even something that Lauren. At least I don't recall Lauren ever grappling with the possibility because she really is fixated on this cosmic um, idea. I don't think she grapples with the possibility that humanity can mature, quote-unquote, here on Earth, you know? Um, She doesn't really draw much attention or spend much time thinking about things like ecosystem restoration or, you know, changing the pushing back against the the government or the economic system that is impoverishing and inflicting violence upon people. She's just really fixated on the destiny. And so that's when I get into the third book and things I learned about the third book when I was researching for this episode. Butler actually planned on exploring the fulfillment of the destiny in the third book, um, Parable of the Trickster. In fact, she intended to have a seven-part series. So the third book would have been Near the middle. As the story would to focus on another woman named Imara, who is living on an earth seed colony in the future on a planet called Bo, far away from Earth. Quote, It is not the heaven that was hoped for, but gray, dank, and utterly miserable. Everybody is homesick. Um, homesick, not just in like, oh, I haven't been home in a while kind of thing. Homesick in the sense of like, you know when someone is like an amputee, and they have this sort of phantom limb sensation. Yeah. This homesickness is like a phantom limb pain, a uh, a neurological debilitation. It's like trying to graft humanity onto a new planet. And it's 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 like if humanity were a branch and this new planet was a tree, and like both the tree and the branch are kind of rejecting each other. Um, and so she never really got very far into writing Parallel of the Tricksters*. Uh, in fact, she had a lot of different um, ways of approaching it. A lot of different manuscripts that she got, you know, a couple pages into and then discarded. You know, so in some versions, the colonists end up having like a creeping blindness. In others, they get this telepathy. Um, in other versions, she has to solve a murder. In other versions, she she becomes a ghost. Sometimes she's an an Earthseed skeptic. Sometimes she's a true believer. Sometimes she's a hyperampath. Sometimes she's cured of it. Um, Sometimes the planet itself is filled with giant dinosaurs. Other times, small animals. Other times, intelligent aliens. Um, And there's also this idea, this, I would say, very Twilight Zone-esque idea, that the aliens that they do encounter are... tokens of their escalating collective madness. And so the whole idea of *Parallel Trickster and what have been the subsequent books was, you know, the continuation of the concept of choice, choosing to either, you know, live together, work together, struggle together, or, you know, fight and scheme and lose their minds, break down, die and murder alone. In a speech to the UN in 2001 that would be like 5 years before she passed away i think she died in like i said 2006 she speaks about how before she even like started working on the first parable novel she wanted to write a novel about a utopian civilization where everybody had a kind of hyper empathy but then and she figured it would be a utopian society because everyone would be inclined to you know behave in a more pro-social way because any antisocial activity they would have, you know, inflicted upon others would be inflicted upon themselves immediately. But then she realized it wouldn't work because sharing pain, the threat of shared pain, doesn't necessarily make people behave better towards one another. She points to the, the popular painful sports of, you know, like boxing and American football. You know, and so she recognizes that this idea of everyone being a hyper empath could cause a lot of trouble. I mean, if everyone feels each other's pain, who wants to be a dentist? <laughs> you know who wants to be a nurse um and so she discards that idea and then she basically created Lauren, who is a lone hyper empath in a world that is empathy deficient. Ultimately, I think Butler gets to the heart of you know, a lot of the issues that we are dealing with. Um, she grapples with a lot of questions that should still be explored. The idea of inclusion and exclusion that balance when, you know, developing community, concept of perseverance, um, concept of hope, the creation and destruction and rebirth of, you know, really <laughs> life and Just what makes life, life. I guess I'll I'll wrap things up with a quote. Does tolerance have a chance? Only if we want it to. Tolerance, like any aspect of peace, is forever a work in progress. Never completed. And if we are as intelligent as we'd like to think we are, never abandoned. That's it. Artists
3: change, shape God, peace. Well, I think that's about as good a line as any to end on. Go read Octavia Butler if you haven't. Check her out. Go to the library. Her shit's all over the library. Libraries are filthy with Octavia Butler books. You'll find it. Or steal it off the internet. She's not going to mind. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
10: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at slash sources. Thanks for listening.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X